Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the uh, Sports Exchange here on the South Florida Tribune Broadcasting Network. My name is Scott Morganroth, and I'm with Louis Antio Weiss, and leading off here and is Ryan Skorud. And Ryan, I'll tell you what, man, interesting fantasy weekend, isn't it, here on the South Sports Exchange, the South Florida Tribune Broadcasting Network. How was your weekend? take care of business. We only got 15 minutes tonight because we're going to have ourselves a busy show. We're going to lead off with you and I'll get to the guests in a moment. But all right, Ryan, we talked about the Aaron Jones, Jamal Williams dilemma. Why is it a dilemma, Ryan? Well, here's the deal. We're, we've, we've discussed this in the preseason, even in the first couple weeks. Matt LaFleur was the head coach or was the, the offensive coordinator in Tennessee last year. And last year, for some reason, the, the Tennessee Titans continue to split carries between Derrick Henry and Deion Lewis. And for no one could figure out why, um, you know, you figured it would be Deion Lewis would be the guy more in, in that uh, Tariq Cohen role, catching passes out of the backfield, maybe even getting used in the slot as a receiver. And then you'd have, you know, Derrick Henry be like your hammer uh, running between the tackles. That makes complete sense. But that's not what they did. Instead, they basically passed everything out evenly from receptions and targets to actual carries. And neither guy was really all that productive at all the entire season until you get to, um, you know, what was it, week 13 or 14 when um, when Derrick Henry runs over the Jacksonville defense for, you know, 200 and some odd yards and four touchdowns. This is the dilemma that we are now facing in Green Bay with Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams. Last night, they basically split carries down the middle. At one point, um, Jones basically gets benched because he uh, of losing a fumble and then dropping a pass that was a surefire, you know, touchdown. And because of that, you know, more, you know, more work went to Jamal Williams, and Jamal Williams did a lot more with his work, with his uh, touches, getting a passing touch or getting a receiving touchdown, uh, having a 45-yard run. I want to say he finished with uh, over 100 overall yards, and he showed that he was going to be the more productive. That being said, they didn't just go with the hot hand in Jamal Williams. They basically split it even and kept putting in Aaron Jones and then pulled Aaron Jones and kept giving the ball to Jamal Williams. So here's the deal. Aaron Jones right now in half-point PPR is the number five running back. A lot of that has to do with last week's game. And you know, I want to say a couple weeks before where he had another, you know, pretty decent game. Jamal Williams right now is only owned in like 16% of fantasy leagues. And he is definitely a guy that you want to have because he provides that flex appeal or bi-week, you know, bi-week wider, or bi-week running back to um, ability um, moving forward for the rest of the season. Because, again, we don't know who is going to be, who is going to be the lead back. It's somewhat of a guessing game, but with Aaron Jones' injury history, 
obviously Jamal Williams is going to be the next guy up. So I think that for me, I see more value in Jamal Williams than I do in Aaron Jones. Okay, very good. All right, so let's talk about the Rams. We have another uh, seven, eight minutes left to go. Uh, what happened to the Rams' offense? All I know is the kicker, uh, Zerline, got me only one point. That didn't very much. Well, here's the, here's the deal with what's going on with the Rams. Um, their offense has just been uh, has just been really out of sync lately. Um, they should be in for a very good game this next week against the Falcons. The Falcons, basically, their entire defense is just a sieve waiting for the water to be poured through it. Um their offense, well, the, the passing for the Rams in terms of yardage is sixth in the league. Um, their, their rushing is still only 20 seconds. They haven't really been able to establish the running game. And because of that, it's caused some struggles, especially this last week, um, in terms of the passing game. Uh, the play calling is what's really confusing me and really has been, I think, the biggest effect um, and, or has caused the biggest effect on the Rams' offense. We look at what they did in this first in this uh, first series against the, the San Francisco 49ers. They ran, I want to say, they ran eight plays, including getting all the way down to the one-yard line, and then two run plays not able to stuff it in. Um, Daryl Henderson looked like he was the more... Um, agile and more um, useful back, more explosive, and yet they kept giving the ball to Malcolm Brown. And then when they finally tried to pass it, at that point they had no choice but to pass it because they were getting behind, not being able to establish the run. And this is the same. This is the same Rams offense that just two and three weeks ago, I think, had two or three runs in the first quarter let alone running nine times on the first, you know, seven times on the first drive. So the, the play calling has become very inconsistent. I know they're trying to game plan for who they're going up against. This week I think will be much better, again, going into into Atlanta against a Falcons team that, whose defense is um, uh, 26th in the league just in terms of yardage. Um, and so this, is, this will be a good bounce-back game for uh, Jared Goff, for Cooper Cup, um, and even for even for Robert Woods, the Robert Woods had a decent game. Um, it's going to be hard right now. If they're really wanting to establish the run, um, it's going to be hard for them to do that without Todd Gurley. Um, I think that uh, Daryl Henderson, I believe, is the more um, explosive. Like I said from this last week, is more explosive the two running backs they have right now. If Gurley is out, but they just don't really seem to want to trust the rookie. So. Okay, let's go up to the Pacific Northwest. You mentioned it. Now you get to talk about it. Is there a Seattle replacement for Will Disley? Yes, and he's actually owned in 1% of leagues. He, uh, he's played for two other teams in the last year, and that is Mr. Luke Wilson. Now, I know he's not going to be a, he's not going to be a top five tight end. That's not what they asked Luke Wilson to be. However, Luke Wilson has had a fair amount of success in the Seahawks offense, though he's only been back with the Seahawks for, was it, uh, a couple weeks, um, he's already had, I want to say, four or five catches. Has not gotten into the end zone yet, but again, he is, because he blocks so well and has the ability to catch the ball, not quite as dynamic as Will Disley, um, not quite as athletic as Will Disley, but because he does have that ability to catch the ball pretty well, um, he will be, I think that going on for the rest of the season, he could be a top 10 
tight ends by the end of the season. It'll take a little bit, um, and it'll take some decent games, but he may end up being more of a streamer, but I think that with what this offense is doing, it will provide him the opportunity to possibly become a, a top 10 tight end with how just a crazy and, and top-heavy the tight end position is. I also believe that this will provide more opportunity for DK Metcalf in the red zone, um, you know, using him as the big body instead of just having a little Disley. Okay, but one more question on my end, and that's this. Why is Matt Patricia, Matt Prater, although Matt Patricia, we have another MP in Detroit, but why is Matt Prater only owning 23% of the Yahoo leagues since this guy kicks long field goals quite a bit, and he, and he had five of them yesterday? Well, here's, here's the deal. A lot of the times with kickers, there are a lot of leagues that are just getting rid of kickers um, in general because of the unpredictability um, of the kicking position um, and field goals in the offense. Um, that being said, a lot of the, a lot of times the highly owned kickers, it's more predicated on how high powered the offense is. Right. So a higher powered offense is usually going to have their kicker more involved um, with extra, you know, at least getting you know two or three points out of extra points, and maybe a field goal or two, which usually is where your your six to eight points. Um, uh, projection is going to line them up with kickers, so that's why there's not. I mean, while the 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 Lions' defense is pre, or Lions' offense has played okay, it hasn't been explosive, and that's why Prater has been a little less owned uh, in leagues this year. Yeah, all I basically did was I I'm hoping to pick him up for probably a couple of weeks uh, when Zerline goes on his buy, and now that Disley's out, I can afford the roster spot for him. And then I'll go back to the old uh, pick up the other playmaker. Lewis, you want to add anything real quickly while we have about two minutes to go in the segment? Three minutes? As far as fantasy goes, I mean, you know, if you've got Jimmy Garoppolo on your team, keep going with it because, you know, with that offensive line right now and just how good that defense is, I mean, the guy's going to put up some mega fantasy points. And I don't even think he's really broken out yet. You know, I think you give him a couple more weeks to get into the flow of things, he's going to have he's gonna have a big second half in those final eight weeks. And, you know, that's already a scary team right now as far as the Super Bowl is concerned. But, you know, Luke Wilson's been a member of that Seahawks team for a while, and he's never really played a massive role in that team. He's always kind of been like that second tight end on that depth chart. But given the, you know, injury they have, you know, he may have to step up in a big way, although Wilson, you know, he seems to have been doing just fine without Wilson's contributions thus far. Yeah, well, he, again, over the last... Or through the through the uh, the second half, or after was it after Disley went down in the first half? Again, Wilson still had a couple of still had a couple of catches. Um, he had a couple the week before. So I, I think that he can again. I think that he can be useful. He may be more of a streamer, but I think that he will have enough enough games that by the end of the season he may come close to cracking that top ten. I, I'm not seeing the consistency won't necessarily be there. I'm one. It's more of he could have get enough of the big games that because, again, of how top-heavy the, the tight end position is, those lower guys, none of them are really consistent. You know, from from tight end 7 to about tight end 13, none of them are consistent. They're just, you know, they've had enough good games to offset the bad games. Now, one of these things that we'll do here is to wrap up the segment, and when, this will give our fans an opportunity to prepare for it. Is I know we know there's there's breaking news that the Jags traded cornerback Jalen Ramsey to the Rams for uh, first round picks in 2021, along with a fourth round pick. 
So one of the things I want you to do tonight, Ryan, is why don't you uh, examine the fantasy impact about where the Jaguars defense goes from here and also the uh, Rams defense because I think they're definitely two organizations that have definitely gone ahead and been impacted by the trade. And I will say this before we close your segment out. Tom Coughlin wanted two first-round picks. He held out for it, and the Rams uh, definitely took it. I think those two teams made a major trade defensively before uh, last year, I believe. So uh, it's not uh, Dante un- Fowler Jr. Right, there you go. Thank you. So Dante Fowler Jr., so it's not uncommon for these two uh, teams to go ahead and uh, – make these big trades and now I think the Jacksonville Jaguars got a pretty good return on their uh, uh, investment so why don't you go ahead and uh, examine anything you want to say before we talk about it in more detail tomorrow uh, as far as, as far as that Rams trade the, the Rams and the, and the Jaguars what we can talk about you know in our in our podcast tomorrow yeah. I think the main thing that I would want to talk discuss is how it's going to affect the teams that play them that's where the biggest effect is going to be seen now that the Jacksonville Jaguars don't have Jalen Ramsey, how is that going to affect the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the New Orleans Saints, the teams in that division playing against them? And the same thing for the Rams dealing with the 49ers, the, uh, the, um, the Arizona Cardinals, and, the, uh, and one more game against the, uh, against the Seahawks. So that's where, those, that's where those kind of trades for the defense are going to have the biggest uh, effect. Yeah, I think it's ironic, too, how you say that, too, Ryan, because... Uh... The Jaguars have played without Ramsey the last couple of weeks anyway, so it's kind of like we're transitioning into where you're going with this thought. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, one thing I should mention is I ended up beating my brother-in-law by a point, and Stafford didn't have one of his better games, but I had just enough. One sack away would have sacked me at a time when uh, uh, I lost some key guys, but I'll take these ugly wins all that, all that we can have them in. Yesterday was ugly. Gives me bragging rights, at least for a few weeks, against my brother-in-law. But anyways, all right, so let's stack to get back tomorrow. Anything you want to add before we close out? Uh, no, I mean, I think we touched on everything we needed to. Just, you know, weird game for Christian McCaffrey this weekend, although he did have two touchdowns, one on the ground, one in the air, even though he had, like, 22 carries for 31 yards. But, you know, still good fantasy week if you can get him in there and, you know, get him in the, in the end zone. So I think that's all that matters as far as fantasy is concerned. All right, Ryan. Yeah, we'll... he, he still ended up being the number one uh, running back in fantasy the past week. So, yeah. or number two, I believe, behind James Conner. A compromise, Jay, um, Christian McCaffrey, still the best in fantasy. I love it. MVP thus far. Except if you're playing him. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean. Just as far as total value, he's been fantastic. All right. But meanwhile, what we'll go ahead and do is we'll talk about this a little bit more. Just so you know, fans, Ryan Schoolroom and I have our weekly fantasy show here on the South Florida Tribune Broadcasting Network. And tomorrow it'll be aired at 8 Eastern time, and it will be released after we uh, put it out there. So, all right, Ryan, once again, good work. We're going to bring in your uh, UK buddy afterwards, and he's probably going to give us some more uh, information on the Jalen Ramsey trade. But good stuff, and we're going to go into a lot more details tomorrow. So thank you, Ryan Skullrude. I appreciate it. We'll do it again tomorrow, all right? Sounds great. Right. Always enjoy to be on the show. Oh, we love having you. Thank you, Ryan. Take Appreciate care, it. Ryan. Have a good night. All right. So while we have a moment, okay, Lewis, uh, before Anthony calls on here, you had an opportunity to uh, um, talk about your experience with uh, covering your first Florida Atlantic University game. Yeah, so, I mean, I told you when we went to that game, I went there for four years, and I never, you know, never made it out to a game. That's just because, you know, pre-existing factors that, you know, 
kind of kept me busy and preoccupied. But that was fun, man, getting to sit in the press box, getting to talk with, you know, some old friends I went to school with who are working kind of in the same field that I am, you know, meeting other writers, working for other news publications. It was fun. Pretty cool. I mean, and, you know, FAU's defense was pretty much the highlight of that game other than, you know, for me on a personal level, getting to cover it on a professional level, that was pretty neat. Obviously, you know, we saw Asher O'Hare, quarterback for uh, Middle Tennessee, very nice quarterback, you know, got a strong arm, very, you know, mobile, dual threat, but, you know, he came into some problems when it came to FAU's defense. I believe they had three interceptions, mm-hmm. turnovers on that, and, you know, I mean, fascinating game, and even it just shows you how mm-hmm. good of a team they've been this year, despite, you know, Chris Robinson, who, you know, only completed 50% of those passes on Saturday. He was 15 for 30. Didn't look as good as he had all season long, you know, where he was, you know, came into that game second in the Conference USA in uh, passing yards up until that game. And, you know, even despite that, his defense bailed him out. And we've seen ugly wins like that in the NFL, too. But it was fun to watch, you know, especially covering it and having to write a story on it. You know, you have to be involved in that regard. Well, I knew it was new territory for you, but not new territory for me. So, you know, you'll have a couple more shots at FAU uh, mm-hmm. football, and then you're going to get involved with the basketball side. Yeah. Until I turn you loose later on this spring and you get to cover all the baseball games you can handle. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be where you know, the star will shine the brightest, I guess, if you want to well, put it that way. But, well, that's okay. No, that's okay. It's, yeah. And that's going to be fun, that you're very good at, and you're learning the ropes. But, yeah, I mean, I've been to thousands of sporting events, so it's good to see you there. I didn't mm-hmm. mind taking a low-key approach. Uh, watching you develop a little bit more, you, you know, nothing but upside. And I'll say it, folks. He doesn't have to say it. Yeah. But, no, with all due respect, it's one of those types of situations where, you know, you cover a live event. It's, not, it's a lot different than writing a story where you can sit behind your computer research. Everything's all in real time with what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And that gave you your first opportunity. So uh, And we have to give a uh, shout-out to Katrina, who works over with the, FAU's Broadcasting Network. She did a terrific job. You know, working with me and all the other writers there, kind of getting them situated, getting them what they needed to. So I love the hospitality on FAU's end. You have to thank Lane Kiffin and right. Robinson, and um, I'm forgetting his last name, but Aquiles, who you know did the post game interviews with us. Right. Nick, Nick Birdie, backup quarterback, who did post game with us. Wow. But the thing is, I've worked with Katrina McCormick uh, since 2007. She's a real great lady. I, uh, Justin Johnson's another guy I work with. So. You know, they're good people, and uh, I know from you being a graduate, seeing it for the first time, it was certainly something else. But meanwhile, we got Anthony Wood coming on the program, and Anthony Wood, thank you very much for coming out about a minute earlier. And again, with information like Jalen Ramsey, why not? Right, Anthony? Absolutely. It's not exactly the news we were expecting today, I think it's safe to say. So go ahead. Talk to me. But yes, absolutely. So the same, yes, so the same day as the uh, the Rams lose, I keep lead to IR, and they also traded Mark, quarterback Marcus Peters to the Ravens in a corresponding move. They must have had this in the pipeline for at least a day or so. Now they've uh, brought in uh, Jalen Ramsey, two first round picks and a fourth round pick, which I believe is also next year. So a relatively hefty price tag if you look at it that way, especially considering that they also have. That he's only got, I believe, another year or two left on his deal. He's going to have to sign a new contract. So. You would assume that they're going into this knowing that they can agree on an extension, or perhaps they're using this as, as a uh, last-ditch attempt to uh, win a Super Bowl, perhaps whilst Jared Goff is still on his rookie contract, and they're making the most of the cap space they have available now. It's an interesting move, and it's a it's a bold one, to say the least. It's going to change their prospects moving forward, no doubt. They haven't been performing quite as expected recently, but this is going to give them that, certainly give them that boost on defense. And, and it's, it's 
a bold statement by the team as well. It's a statement of intent, if nothing else, that they still believe this could be their year or next year could be their year. But it just it throws up a lot of questions as well as answers. At the same time, you can't help but wonder what's their plan moving forward then for 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 him. I mean, are they going to keep him long term? Are they going to be able to sign into a new deal as well as having to sign the likes of Goff to a new deal and then a number of others, Cooper Cup, for example, is another one that's going to be requiring a new deal relatively soon. So it's it's an interesting move. It's one that I don't think anyone really expected. We didn't think at this point in time that Ramsey was going to get traded. So it's, it's surprising to say the least. But um, Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's a good thing. Okay, well, I'm going to address it in a couple different areas. Number one, uh, I'm glad you brought up the uh, the uh, Tlaib trade uh, move to IR. That definitely motivated this move without a doubt. Number two, um, you know, uh, Tom Coughlin was determined to get what he wanted, and he was looking for two uh, first-round picks, and he got it and got a fourth with it. So, you know, and remember, Ramsey hasn't played the last couple weeks, so you got a guy who obviously hasn't played so yeah, at this point you found a taker and of course not, don't forget that these two teams traded uh, Dante Fowler went west last year so there's a history between the trading between these two teams so I'm not surprised that it was inevitable but Tom Coughlin give him a lot of credit he held out Doug Marone doesn't have to deal with this headache anymore and as long as the Jaguars can cash in on those picks more power to them but I think you're right Anthony you nailed it there was a desperation move on the Rams, and they'll figure out the money later. Lewis, you want to uh, chime in on this one? Yeah, so I was telling you before the show, I genuinely think that this is kind of like a sign of trust that the Jaguars are placing in Minshew, and granted, he hasn't been great over the past couple of weeks, I understand that, but I genuinely think that they see a lot of promise in him, despite the fact that he wasn't a high draft pick coming out of college. But I genuinely think they could maybe invest in a wide receiver, further short of the offensive line, maybe even draft another cornerback with one of those two draft picks right. that they have going forward in the next two drafts. And you know what? Maybe Foles gets traded again when he comes back. But I think the biggest takeaway I can take from this is that, you know what? Maybe they see Minshew this year for Minshew because of Foles' extended leave of absence due to his clavicle injury. Maybe they see this as more as a, of a development year for him. And then, you know, come the 2020 draft when they get to use one of those first-round draft picks, they get somebody that could aid him moving forward. Maybe it's on the offensive side or maybe they say they draft another corner, sure up the offensive line. I just think that it's a sign of them looking towards the future. They're not, you know, I understand being in the right now is important, but this trade signifies that they have some sort of groundwork being laid towards, you know, what's coming forward in the ensuing future. Yeah, but I think that the Jaguars can win right now, to be honest with you. They've got two games in the next two weeks, okay, against the uh, Jets and the Bengals, the Bengals this week. They have to come away with... Uh, with that stretch four and four, or Doug Marone's in trouble. We'll get to that another time, Anthony and Lewis. But uh, I mean, I would have, I'd agree with you there. I think they should come. They should come away from this Bengals game at the very least. For the right. Future. I mean, if they don't go away from that with a win, something is desperately wrong. With regards to the Jets game, I don't know. I, I like what the Jets are doing at the moment. I've been very impressed with them this last week or so, and they've got talent. So that's right. the game I would worry about a little bit, especially now with with Sam Darnold back right. in a slightly thinner secondary. That would be my concern. Is how are they going to replace someone like him? I know obviously they haven't had him for the last couple of weeks, but he's going to be a difficult guy to replace, especially in the short term. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. But, you know, I'm, I'm not saying, well, listen, let's not lose sight of the fact that the Jets ambushed the Cowboys 24 22. Like the big comeback victory they, there. They did, but they did ambush them. Everybody gave Dallas, they were heavy favorites going into this game. 
Amari Cooper goes down with an injury, and as if Cobb went down, what was it, Randall Cobb went down, and the uh, Cowboys were down a couple wideouts, and Dak Prescott doesn't even make 300 yards, and they're relying on Ezekiel Elliott to do it all for him. So, yeah, I think that Darnold's presence certainly makes the Jets better, but I still think Jacksonville, uh, they still have some offensive weapons uh, that I do believe they should be able to beat the Jets. And I think that they need to come away from the next two weeks, four and four. I really do uh, believe that. But as far as the Ramsey trade, you know, Tom Coughlin, I'll say it again, guys, okay, held out and got what he wanted. And once you find held out, there's always a desperate team out there, and the Rams were definitely that desperate team. It's their problem about signing him, but Jacksonville got what they had to get rid of. And more importantly, they got rid of a distraction anyhow. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, and the fact that they'll have a little financial uh, relief, not having to worry about Jalen Ramsey's uh, salary later. It's just time to turn the page with them. So Doug Marone doesn't have to ask answer all these questions because Tom Coughlin stays in the background doing it. So I don't know. Now, obviously, nothing like breaking news, right, Anthony? Oh, you got to love it. I mean, it's getting so close to the trade deadline now, and it's so exciting. And I think that I'm convinced there's going to be at least a couple more trades before the end of the uh, before the trade deadline. Yeah, what we're going to do, Anthony, tonight is we're going to hold off on the XFL draft top names until Thursday. By then, the draft should be completed. All right, how's that sound? Okay, uh, and and I want to focus on a couple of other NFL topics, if I may. All right, well, let's talk about injury updates. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so there's obviously it's been a. It's been a bad week, if I'm being honest, but in terms of injuries, it's been particularly poor. So the Texans lost two of their starters, Bradley Roby. He's out for at least three games with a hamstring injury. They were already down Jonathan Joseph, also with a hamstring injury. That hurts them. And then also, first-round rookie offensive tackle, Titus Howard, is out from anywhere between two and six weeks with an MCL injury. He was lucky not to tear his MCL or ACL, but he is out for the moment. So that's, that gives them another hole. They've already signed a replacement off the Patriots practice squad, but that's Certainly not what they were hoping going into a tough stretch of games. The Patriots, speaking of them, uh, defensive end Michael Bennett has been suspended again by the team for cruel conduct and detrimental to the team, which was uh, somewhat unexpected. But yes, though, he's not been to training this week either. They've, they've also decided to work out four kickers and a punter today alone. They've just cut Young Hu Ku from the uh, practice squad, the kicker, formerly of the Chargers. So I think it shows they're not 100% happy perhaps with Mike Nugent or the punter for that matter. So it's going to be uh, interesting to keep an eye out on. We know how how strict Belichick is about getting the most out of special teams, so that's something to keep an eye out for. Obviously, going back to the Rams, we mentioned a key to leave. Marcus Peters gone to the Ravens in a trade involving Kenny Young, the linebacker for the Ravens, going the other way. The Rams have also lost guard Joseph Notabomit for the year on IR. Uh, they've also traded, as a result, they've just traded a 2021 fifth-round pick for Brown center Austin Corbett to help bulk up that offensive line. So it's been a lot of moves for the Jets today, I think it's safe to say, for the Rams today. But, um, yes, moving on to the Jets, obviously we spoke about them just a minute ago. Another offensive lineman guard, Kalechi Osmele, is to have surgery and he is out for the moment. We don't know how long at this point in time. Uh, going back to cornerbacks, Chiefs cornerback Kendall Fuller has suffered a slight fracture in his thumb and he is out for the moment. Don't know again on the specific timeline for his return. Uh, back to the Patriots, another new headline that's come through is that they have signed tight end Eric Tomlinson after losing Matt Lacoste to injury. Uh, there's also talk about so they're bringing Ben Watson back, someone they cut very recently, but we don't know anything certain yet. Uh, the Bengals, again, another team we mentioned just now, coming out up against the Jags this coming week. They're going to be without quarterback Dre Kirkpatrick, who's out for a month with a 
with a hyper-extensive knee, so that's a good news from the Jack's point of view there, because he's by far their best corner. The Steelers have lost defensive end Stefan Tuitt for a year with a torn pec. That's tough news for a Steelers team. That's not exactly having a year. They'd really expect it. The Bears have lost Kyle Long, offensive lineman, again for the rest of this year with a hip injury, and, he's, and uh, his contract is about to be up as well, so that may well be the last game he played for the Bears. And then finally, Akeem Hicks, defensive tackle for the Bears, is now also on IR out for the year, so it's been a tough day for Bears fans as well. There's been a lot of moves today, during the rounds of trade as well. And again, I mentioned it before, I'm convinced there are going to be some more moves. The Texans are in desperate need for another cornerback. I can see them trading for someone. I've heard rumors that they are talking to various teams. Don't know as of yet who it's going to be, but there will be another trade that I'm pretty, I'm relatively confident, especially with O'Brien in charge. And around the NFL as well, it wouldn't surprise me if there were a couple more. Perhaps the Jaguars bring in someone else to sort of as a stopgap for, for the coming months. We don't know. It's going to be interesting to see what happens before the trade deadline. Yeah, and ironically, of all the trade deadlines that I've looked at in the other sports, I find the NFL the most interesting trade deadline because really a lot of people don't care about it because a lot of those moves don't hold out long term. All right, well, we'll give you one more thing to talk about, then we'll bring the other things back on Thursday, okay, because obviously Ramsey took precedent over the other things that we're talking about. And we'll stay in Texas with Jason Garrett's situation. What's your take on it, Anthony? What is Jason Garrett's situation? It's an interesting one, and there's a lot of rumors going around, especially with, with the defensive coordinator, Kellen Moore and, and, and Richards. The uh, defensive coordinator is doing so well. There's a lot of talk of, well, Garrett's in the last year of his contract. What's going to happen after this season? They've just lost three straight games after what looked like a hot streak. And I said this after week three. I said to multiple people, this, this was not a good test for the Cowboys. Yes, they came out of it looking good, but they were up against three poor, poor teams at the time. And, and they've really not performed these last three games. Yes, against the, uh, the Packers and against the Jets, they came back third, fourth quarters, and they nearly came back to win the games. But there is something not right in Dallas. Now, Jerry Jones has spoken today. He said, we have a lot invested in Jason Garrett. He's evolved in what I call a top coach. He brings a lot to the table. He said, with regards to this being a, a season where Jason's on the hot seat or not, he said, it's not a thought I am having. Um, yes, he has said that, but if, he think, if Jason were to hit, to hit the market, so to speak, he believes he would be a very sought-after head coach if available, which is, I found an interesting comment. But, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of people talking about, look, we've got, they've got two very talented young coaches there. One of the Richards in particular, it um, would be surprising he's not a head coach at this point already, so perhaps he's, he's waiting for Garrett to finish out his contract, because if you look at some of the clips, on the sidelines, I mean, there was this very famous one that was going around of all the players avoiding Jason Garrett after the game against the Jets. And, and something that worries me about the Cowboys, and I've said this before, is there doesn't seem to be a great deal of, of camaraderie. They're, they just look so down, they're so quiet on the sidelines, and they can't keep relying on these late-game comebacks, especially when they come up against the top of the team. So he may be, Jerry Jones may be saying this isn't a season where, J, where Jason Garrett's on the hot seat, I'm not sure if I entirely believe that, especially with two talented young uh, young coaches in the ranks at Dallas already. All right, let me give you my take on that. Well, we have another two and a half, three minutes to go on this one, too. I, I definitely agree with you. I think Jason Garrett could definitely land someplace, especially if you have a situation where they need to develop a quarterback because Jason Garrett was a pretty good one himself. And anytime you're in a lame duck situation like he is in, then without a doubt, uh, you know, he's looking over his shoulder. So, you know... You know, Jerry Jones is a very loyal person, but yeah, it's certainly a very difficult situation knowing that, you know, your contract hasn't been renewed and uh, the Cowboys have not achieved their goal and he has had a fair amount of talent to work with, 
but again, you're talking about an owner who's heavily involved. So, you know, well, let's have a little bit of fun with this while we have another minute and a half or two minutes to go. Let's just say hypothetically Garrett isn't there anymore. Do you have one or two potential landing spots that you think you could probably end up going? Yes, I was actually going to say, how would you feel about this? Obviously, being in Jacksonville yourself, you mentioned that the Jags aren't necessarily uh, hitting their stride at the moment. If Maroon doesn't finish the season with the Jags or, or isn't there next year, what about with Garrett there? They've got a young QB that needs, that needs to be uh, coached properly. Perhaps they look at him there, and uh, perhaps he'd be the, the sort of guy that they need for Minshew. If I were going to speculate with one name that I think could be in Jacksonville, there's just one name that I think, I would have put Mike McCarthy in there. Former Packers. Former Packers coach. coach. So, I, can, I can definitely see that as well. Definitely. Yeah. Especially with, because it's, it's a tough one. Are they gonna, what are they going to do once, once Foles is back? Are they gonna, I can't see any other teams looking straight for him with that massive contract he's got as a backup. So it's, it's a tough one. What are they going to do there with Minshew? But Minshew, I think he's, certainly at the moment, he deserves to, to keep that spot. Well, yeah, I think right now they're in a position with Minshew that they can afford to keep him in there because they don't know what's going on with Foles, so they have time to do that. That's something that we'll talk about in a, at a later date, but it's definitely food for thought about uh, the fact that you can keep Foles around for a, a year or two uh, <clears throat> because there will be a quarterback desperate needed team, and the Jaguars will hold out for whatever they want. They just showed that here today well, with the uh, situation uh, – that uh, they did, and that was by getting what they wanted for Jalen Ramsey. So, you know, don't discount the football decision makers in that organization. They're pretty smart, and they hit on some of their draft choices this year. So, you know, it's, it's interesting, and I like covering the draft for them up there as well. So I guarantee you, you'll get the breaking news from me when I'm up there if I find any draft information. So anything else you want to add? I'm looking forward to it. Anything else you want to add? So you, uh, that on Thursday, you're going to, carry over the uh, XFL stuff because I think that would be pretty interesting stuff. Uh, yeah, and we'll go into more detail. We've the first day of the uh, XFL draft today. There have been a lot of moves, a couple of surprising moves at that as well. And so it's going to be interesting to see uh, what happens over the next the next day or so to finish it off and who, who ends up at what team. But, yeah, there's going to be a lot of familiar faces in that league come the end of this week. Yeah, and we'll focus on that. I'll make sure we have enough time to cover it thoroughly. So, all right, Anthony Wood, as usual, uh, thanks for doing an outstanding job. And we'll look forward to doing this uh, in around 48 hours from now. Any closing thoughts with Anthony? Um, just a real quick thought. If Tannehill struggles and they don't seem to trust Mariota there in Tennessee, what about when Foles comes back, they entertain the idea of trading him to, say, the Titans? Maybe that could be an offseason trade, too, given that the deadline may be, have already passed by the time that he returns. But, you know, it's just an idea to throw out there. They could also look towards the draft next year, towards getting another quarterback in Tennessee. But, I mean, Foles could be a fit there, you know, the Jaguars have to eat some of his salary, but you know that remains to be seen. Yeah, the only reason why I would have a hard time seeing that is I don't think they'd want to trade him within the division. That's true. That is. But true. that was the only thing. Otherwise, that would be a logical destination. So, but good point by both of you guys. All right. With that said, okay, uh, Anthony, we'll do it again in 48 hours, and let's uh, I'll do a little bit of research on the XFL side since they involve some uh, former uh, NFL players. All right, Anthony. Once again, well done, Anthony. Thank you very much. Uh, We'll talk to you Thursday. Thanks. All right. So with that said, okay, let's talk about some of the... um, Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate it. Hmm. With that said, okay, let's talk about that. I I know that the Foles idea would be probably an interesting one, but I I don't know. I don't see that one happening. I mean, hey, if Andy Dalton, you know, decides to walk away after this year, just given how, you know, bad Cincinnati's been, and they have a minus 62-point differential... 
as far as what they've allowed and what they've scored. But, you know, he could possibly be a fit there, too. Again, it's what you just, you know, were touching on. I don't know if a team wants to, you know, give a quarterback three years for $66 million. You know, that's pretty much what he'll be owed after this season. But right. you're going to need somebody. And I honestly, at this point, you know, Dalton's not a bad quarterback. I think he's a little older, and he's been in that system a very long time. I think it's just time for a new face. I think, you know, like, as good as he can be, it's not hap- It's not helping that they're 0-4 on the road and they're just 0-6 in general. This is one of the worst starts the Chiefs have gotten off to in the last, say, 20 years. I saw a note today that I think this is their first 0-6 start since, like, the early 2000s. And, I mean, it's not productive, but, you know, maybe Nick Foles, who has a history of coming in there and having some success right away, could bolster some of the profits for them or the fortunes for that team moving forward. Again, the contract is the only thing that really stands in the way of that. Yeah, but in the NFL, that's that's the big thing that stands in the way mm-hmm. because they do have a hard salary But cap. at the end of the day, the guy is... I genuinely don't think Nick Foles is a backup quarterback. I think he is... You know, I'm not going to say he's among the elite quarterbacks in the NFL, but I think he's a mid-tier quarterback in this league, and I think he could help a team, especially a team like the Bengals that have been in flux. Yeah, I don't see him going to the Bengals, though. I really don't see him there... But again, you know what? We can speculate it all we want, and I enjoy going back and forth with you on these kind of things because I think they're very, very maybe, interesting. Maybe he goes to the Washington Redskins, a team that, you know, they're well, unsure. Now, now that's a different story. They're unsure of their quarterback situation. Well, they, they've been unsure of their quarterbacks uh, for, for a, a while, time, ever since so. Kirk Cousins left, and then even before that with Colt McCoy there. They, they've The Redskins have found more ways to mismanage that situation, whether it's a coach, a quarterback, or whatever. I, I definitely see your point, though. But I don't know if the Washington Redskins know how to mismanage anything. They've certainly uh, they're the epitome of doing exactly yeah, they're, that. I, they're one of the most poorly run organizations in the NFL, along with the Jets. Another team who could be in that discussion as well, given you know their struggles. But I genuinely think that they you know they like Sam Darnold a little bit too much to really go part. No, they got them. their quarterback future there. But you know what? One of these days, you and I can go ahead and. And spend a little bit of time talking about potential fits for. I mean, it's place. yeah, it's an issue. I think that has prevailed all NFL season. I think. Wouldn't you agree with me? Well, I, mean, I think the one that spot, believe it or not, is if Baker Mayfield continues to struggle, I could actually see Nick Foles as a Cleveland Brown. And I'm going to say this, and I understand it's only been a few weeks, but he really hasn't looked impressive, and that rookie year wasn't all too fun in Arizona. Right. But maybe you know he's got diarrhea of the mouth. Maybe Josh Rosen winds up, you know, saying bye-bye, and he Miami goes after him. But again, no. the biggest no. thing, like we've already highlighted, is that contract. It turns a lot of teams away. I genuinely think, like, 15 teams would legitimately be interested in Nick Foles, given, you know, his ability. But again, once he's already gotten the money, it's the same thing with Kirk Cousins, who did have a good game last week. I just think it turns a lot of them away. But it's gonna. there's going to be some team that's going to do it if Minshew continues to play well, say he... You know, he builds on these last couple of weeks of struggles, and, you know, he say he goes on a three-week run where he looks great. I think that'll solidify his status as the starter moving forward, and they're going to have to start looking at options, you know, without Foles and just moving on from him. Just remember one word as we continue this debate with Manuel, okay? Desperate. Mm-hmm. Whatever team is desperate will spend the money. Yeah. Well, That's all I can tell you. They, they will be desperate. And it's okay. not even about spending the money. I think it's, desperate. Yeah, it's just about taking on that contract. Desperate. They'll take the contract if they think he can win, and they think they're close enough. They will. There's a team that will take him. It's. Fun. I could actually see him, believe it or not, going to Tampa. I was just about to say that. I could see that. I was just about that. to say that, and I'm yeah. glad you agree with me because that situation is so in flux. We saw Jameis's game in London the other day. 
He threw five interceptions, right. and he fumbled twice, and he was sacked like four times. Right. It's been a struggle. I mean, I don't care that he threw for 400 yards. It doesn't matter. No, no, no. I can see Tampa. It doesn't matter. I think. Plus it's, not only that, it's out of the conference. They don't have to face them once every season. Yeah, I mean, Winston is becoming a slightly better version of what the Raiders had with Jamarcus Russell about in 2007. He's just not the quarterback that they thought they drafted when the Raiders took Russell out of LSU and Winston out of Florida State. I just think, you know, a lot of those guys just don't seem to pan out. And Winston, thus far, it genuinely hasn't panned out. Well, I consider him a bust. Absolutely. Absolutely. Considering, I mean, he won a national championship and he'll always be remembered for that, but so did Tim Tebow. Although I'd argue that Winston has a little bit better of an idea of the quarterback position than Tebow did just because of Tebow's, you know, style of play. Mm -hmm. We kind of saw it with Azure O'Hara this week, and I know we'll get back to FAU, but very mobile quarterback who, you know, his arm's not the best, but, you know, he relies heavily on the ground game to kind of, you know, get the job done. And that's kind of what was Tebow's undoing. It wasn't Winston's undoing, but... Wow. He's a bust. Yeah. He's a bust. Yeah, for lack of a better word, he is a bust. There are lots of busts. And he's a bust. And unfortunately, the NFL, we see that a lot more. Mm-hmm. That's just because of how small a sample size you really have to produce. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, yeah, well, again, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a uh, league that you have to go ahead and, uh, you have to go ahead and, uh, you have to produce right everybody's away. Everybody's basically Lewis on a one-year contract. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, unless you're Tom Brady, but at this point, I'd argue he's on a one-year basis because of his age. Yeah. I mean, the def- I wouldn't go there. But the yeah, defense has I bailed them out. Father time could definitely factor into this thing. I think sure. we've started to see a couple of chinks in the armor too. He still reads the defense relatively well, but I just don't. You know, he wasn't the same way he was in 2017. But then again, I've already staked the claim that if this team's run game gets going, this can go down as the best team of all time. You know, without Gronkowski <laughs> and without Brady playing at the level he did in 2017, 2016. It's it's fascinating though. I mean. And the NFL, like I said, like you and me have outlined, is a week by week kind of thing, and you never and the storyline changes every single week. Oh yeah, yeah, without a doubt, that's for mm-hmm. sure. It does. Uh, you know, it definitely uh, is one of those situation. Uh, uh, something that uh, uh, does change on a uh, yeah. So, all right. With that said, okay. Uh, uh, interesting debate for sure. So, meanwhile, we have Tom Shanahan on the line. Tom, thanks for call, uh, being on the Sports Exchange. Yeah, no problem. I was a little confused. I thought you were calling me. No, nope, not at all. No, we're on live. So, that's okay, Tom. So, let's go over a few things while we have a few moments, okay? We're good. Glad you're on the air, okay? We'll talk about your uh, promote your book, The Ray of Light. Tell everybody what they have to go ahead and uh, uh, look for. Why is it a good buy? Well, one thing, you can go to my website, which is ShanahanReport.com, or look on Twitter, Shanny4055, and I have lots of links and information about the book. But what's special about this book is uh, Michigan State's Underground Railroad teamed with Duffy Doherty is largely an untold story. People think Duffy just got lucky with a couple of players, but he actually had a long relationship with the black high school coaches during segregation in the South, and they trusted him for putting on clinics in the South, and they would send him their players, guys that turned out to be college football Hall of Famers like Bubba Smith from Texas, George Webster from South Carolina, 
and then uh, Gene Washington, also from Texas, Jimmy Ray, who was uh, the first black quarterback from the South to win a national title on the 1966 team, and then went on to a long coaching career in college and the NFL. So there's really no other story like it. There are a lot of myths about USC and Alabama, particularly about Bear Bryant, because the truth is Bear Bryant dragged his feet on segregation. So my book tries to set the record state on a lot of things and give credit where it is due to Duffy Doherty. Very good. All right, well, you live out in ACC country, so we'll give you an opportunity to talk ACC football. Okay, but before you do that, I just want to let everybody know that I met Tom Shanahan up in North Carolina at the National Sports Media Association uh, uh, Banquet and Award Center. We got we struck a very good friendship. Of course, seeing the guy wearing a Michigan State Spartan shirt and me being from the area didn't hurt matters any either. And Tom, just so you know, is going to be a regular on the program. He'll talk about all ACC sports, Army, Navy, and uh, all the air, air, the uh, military academy. So that'll give you a pretty much an overview of what he does. We'll talk about ACC basketball on Thursday. Okay, but meanwhile, we have about seven minutes or so to go. Uh, let's talk about ACC football weekend. Yeah, so I'm uh, here in the Raleigh-Durham area. That's why I'm right in the middle of the ACC country. Uh, you know, the, I think the ACC is kind of getting a bad knock. Uh, everybody thinks Clemson's the only good team in the conference. But I think what you've seen in football is with the college football playoff, all the top players, all the four-star and five-star players, are just going to a handful of schools, Alabama, Clemson, Georgia's entered the mix, Oklahoma. And uh, those schools have separated them so much, it's almost like there's two tiers of football. So the SEC, and I guess LSU, got to put them in there too. So the SEC talks about how great they are, but they, they have just so much more talent funneled into them. The bottom, of their, the bottom of their conference, their teams aren't that much better than the bottom of the ACC, or, and then the same with the middle of the two conferences. Uh, as far as the big game in the ACC this week, Louisville has really put together an interesting season. Uh, their their coach Steve Satterfield was at Appalachian State, and they've had a he's really built that program up uh, into a top twenty five program uh, you could say because they're getting that kind of recognition. They're in the top twenty five this week, and uh, they're going to play Clemson Saturday. So we'll find out how much uh, they've improved. Uh, I think most of it is they're just a more disciplined and better team than they were uh, before. Uh, last year when the, the program really went the tank. and uh, They may not match up physically with Clemson, but it's an interesting matchup to see them uh, having a, a bounce-back season like this. They're 4-2, uh, 2-1 and two, two and one in the ACC, and of course Clemson's unbeaten still. Yeah, you know, Tom, you talk about Louisville. That's a good point. I'm glad that you brought uh, them up, because I know they wanted to get Jeff Brown, but he opted, opted to uh, stay at Purdue. But... Uh, and Bobby Petrino obviously left the program in tough shape, although he had some good success. Are you surprised that Louisville is actually uh, is much better at this point than initially when Petrino left? I know Willie Taggart turned it around, obviously, to get it to Petrino, and then they had some success. Go ahead, Tom. Well, I'm not that surprised, but only because I'm familiar with Steve Satterfield, the work he did at Appalachian State. Okay. You know, that, that's a very good program at Appalachian State, and, and he's obviously a very good coach. So uh, I guess the only surprise is he's been able to turn it around quickly, and if the players, uh, uh, you know, 
they brought in to have a more disciplined program than Bobby Petrino was. Yeah, that 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 is pretty interesting. What are your thoughts about the Miami Hurricanes beating Virginia over the weekend? That was a big surprise. I thought, you know, Miami, I didn't expect them to do anything this year after some of their results, losing to North Carolina. Uh, and Virginia is just a real solid program. Um, you know, that's still a hard one to figure out. Virginia has another tough one this week against Duke. That coastal race is wide open. You might see a team... Uh, uh, with two losses, win the Coastal Division, which is what happened last year, when Pitt was only seven and five and overall, but six and two in the in the Coastal Division, and and they won their half and played Clemson in the ACC championship game. I would expect to see that again a two loss team. Okay, and uh, let's talk about Manny Diaz. Uh, we have uh, another few more minutes to go here, but Manny Diaz, do you think that he was the right hire? I know Mark Rick. Uh, coached there a couple of years, and I think he probably was. I think they uh, Hurricanes got the wrong Mark Rick when, when he was at the tail end of things. But Manny Diaz appears to be a very high energy guy, and uh, and of course when he's involved in the defense, they're awfully good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, coaches lose their edge. I think that's probably what happened to Mark Rick. But uh, Manny Diaz, that's definitely not a concern. Um, you know, the thing I like about Manny Diaz, he talked about this at the ACC kickoff back in July uh, is that uh, Miami has lived off a reputation for having tons of talent uh, and uh, uh, he wants to have more of a blue collar mentality to the program and I think that'll make them more consistent it might be a tough transition but uh, I think it'll make them a more consistent program it's something a little bit you want something to be proud of it's a program like that as opposed to what, you know, they were—they had so many bad actors on that on those winning teams over the years. Kellen Winslow uh, Jr. being the the worst of them all with his soldier statements. Oh, but uh, I, I really thought uh, that was interesting what Manny Diaz talked about. That's he's trying to change the culture that we're not going to talk about just how talented we are. We're going to work and we're going to be blue collar and prove we're a good team. Well, you and I. To appreciate the blue collar way. I'm from Metro Detroit, and we're blue collar people. Lewis, <laughs> uh, so we can appreciate Lewis. You want to add something very quickly before we go on to Barry Foot about college football? I mean, again, I'm not too super well versed in college sports, so I don't know what I can contribute of substance here. But well, he hey, listen, okay, Tom, uh, he we're breaking him into the college football. So he did have an opportunity to go ahead and cover Florida Atlantic, though, against. Uh, drawing a blank, Middle Tennessee. So that was his first go-around. Tell him what he has to expect when he's covering college football. <laughs> the unexpected. Yeah, the unexpected. I mean, I mean, I guess the best thing about college football is the cultural aspect of it, the regionality, and each different right. school has their own particular culture. That's something to admire. But, you know, I, it's something I need to immerse myself in a lot more considering I'm doing it a lot more now than I was, say, before when I wasn't as involved in college sports. Well, that's fair enough. But let's go back to the Carolinas. You talk about a state or states that are definitely have a lot of good programs. Let me tell you, between North and South Carolina, they're loaded. They really, really are. I mean, I'm not talking about just the Clemsons, uh, the North Carolina and the South Carolina, but when you look at some of the other schools in the area, like Appalachian State uh, as of late, NC State, Wake Forest, they're having some pretty good uh, uh, teams, and, and the list goes on and on and on, you know, so... And you being right smack, and Duke has a good program as well. So, uh, yeah, in your David, backyard. 
David Cutcliffe at Duke is just such a great coach. Uh, I learned something from him every time he has his duty of Tuesday media sessions because he's so willing to share football wisdom. And, and, and for a lot of those folks that are listening, David Cutcliffe uh, has a tentative um, uh, visitors when they uh, bring in the Mannings to educate the yeah. uh, troops, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, it, you know, people around here that follow Duke, you know, uh, the New York Giants got a lot of criticism for taking Daniel Jones with a sixth pick. He's not, he hasn't done anything that surprised people that follow Duke. Uh, they knew that was a good pick. Yeah, all right, let's talk about that for a moment, and then we'll give you an opportunity really quickly to preview what you're going to talk about Thursday. Do you feel that the Giants uh, took uh, too much unjust criticism by taking Daniel Jones? Because I'll tell you, Askins hasn't done anything with the Washington Redskins. Yeah, you know, people were talking about his stats and things like that. Well, he never really had a good offensive line. Uh, Duke's uh, offensive line this year is a lot better, which is one reason they might have a shot to contend for the division title. So he always uh, had just that average line at best. And, but then worse than that is wide receivers. You know, the other guys he played with are in the NFL now. He suffered from a lot of drop balls. So, uh, but from the first time he showed up as a, as a freshman and was on the scout team as a redshirt, the varsity defensive backs, that's always been a strength of Duke. They've sent a lot of DBs to the NFL over the years. They said from the very beginning, this guy's an NFL quarterback. He's got an NFL arm. So uh, you couldn't go by his stats at Duke. You had to go by uh, what you saw from him and his ability when he had his good games, when uh, Duke wasn't maybe outmatched up front. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, David Cutcliffe, was, who's kind of a quarterback whisperer, he always talked about what a – smart player and hard worker and well prepared. He said Daniel Jones is always prepared for games. That's one reason he's, he gives him credit for uh, doing so well as a rookie as the Giants. In fact, he told the Giants when they drafted him, you don't have to worry about him being ready to play. Well, well, well said there, Tom. So, all right, well, uh, we look forward to having you as a regular contributor here on the Sports Exchange. I think what we're going to do, though, is we're going to have you doing football on Tuesday and then we're going to have you do college basketball on Thursday, so you can talk about the ACC media date, and we'll discuss that a bit more tomorrow. But meanwhile, Tom, thanks for being on the Sports Exchange, and looking forward to having you on as a regular contributor, Tom. Thank you very much, Tom Shanahan. And uh, tell before you get off the line, tell everybody where they can get Ray of Light one more time. Yeah, yeah just go to my uh, Twitter page, Shanny4055, or my website, ShanahanReport.com, and that's Shanahan. Just like Kyle Shanahan, the 49ers coach. Yeah, and Tom's very nice uh, to allow us to take some of his material and put it on the South Florida Tribune page. So we appreciate your uh, graciousness in allowing us to do that, Tom. So thank you very much. Meanwhile, we'll go back to work on uh, Thursday, and we'll talk tomorrow. All right, Tom? Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thanks for being on, Tom. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you Thursday. I'll talk to you sooner than that. All righty? Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, all right, Lewis, let's talk about the subject you're all too familiar with, and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, baseball with Barry Foote. You've obviously done a little bit of homework on Barry. What are your thoughts about what we can expect that you'll be talking to him about? Uh, I mean, I guess little while? It, it's a little bit like when, you know, I interviewed Latel for the first time in July. It was a little bit like this old versus new, obviously. Like, I didn't play baseball, so I don't have right. the experiences and the relationships formed the same way that he does given his tenure during the major leagues, but... You know, you prefaced it before the show. He's a bit of an old school kind of guy. Right. 
And, you know, me, you know, I love the old school. I think baseball's history is the only one that seems to repeat itself in a myriad of ways, but it'll be interesting to get contrasting views on his side compared to my side. You know, I'm excited to talk to him. Uh, anytime I have an opportunity to talk to somebody who played in Major League Baseball, what I consider, like, the epitaph of, like, human happiness, in my opinion, just because of my affinity for the sport, you know, it's going to be it's gonna be amazing. And, you know, I'm excited to hear what he has to say. I'm excited to hear about, you know, his answers to your questions that you're going to ask. And maybe the questions that'll spurt into my head, which I'm sure they will, given it's my forte baseball, you know, my you know, my lane that I prefer to drive in, you know, when we're talking sports. But um no, I, it's gonna be fun. I'm like looking forward to him calling in and yeah, I can't wait to uh you know, I'm not gonna say the use the expression that we like to use, but it'll be fun. You know, I'm excited to see what he has to contribute to our, our show tonight. So let's talk about the uh, Astros and Yankees a little bit. I mean Look, we, you and me talked about this before last Thursday's show, and you genuinely thought the Yankees were going to win this series, but I just don't see that happening right now. And a lot of that, you know, has to come down to just, I'm, you know, we can talk about Houston's pitching all you want, but if you, I was watching the game today, and for those of you who don't know, and I'm sure by the time this comes out, obviously the game will be over, but Houston won 4-1, to one, they have a two-games-to-one lead in the series. Houston just grinds out at bats, man. And in this era today when we have teams that strike out, you know, and the way that they do when we're baseball kind of hitting as I would argue devolved to the point of launch angle and this idea of the three true outcomes where we're either trying to homer strike out or get on base. It's it's very nice to see a team like the Astros who don't strike out. In fact, two of their hitters this year, I believe, or three of them that I'm aware of, uh, Yuli Gurriel, their first baseman, Alex Bregman, their third baseman, and Altuve all struck out under 100 times this year. I mean, I'll have to double-check that on Altuve, but Gurriel, full-time player now three years in the majors, has yet to strike out 70 times in a season. That's pretty incredible, but here's Barry, so, I mean, we'll talk about this some more. All right, well, on the South Florida Tribune uh, hotline, we have Barry Foote. Well, Barry, welcome back to the Sports Exchange. Uh, I got a new co-host here, Louis Eddie Weiss, a guy that knows baseball too well. Thanks for being back on here, Barry. Appreciate oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Oh, uh, we're glad to have you. So, anyways, Louis Sandy Owais, you have a chance to meet Barry Foot. Very nice to meet you. Uh, my pleasure. So, anyways, just to give Lewis a little bit of an overview, even though you and I have talked about this before with a previous co-host. Okay, Barry and I met one another back in 1984, and we worked together with the Fort Lauderdale Yankees, who, by the way, won the Florida State League title. Then you were the manager of the year, and then when our paths crossed in 1987. Wow when I was the director of public relations for the Gastonia Rangers, and Barry was managing the Myrtle Beach Blue Jays, who, by the way, won the title, and Barry was manager of the year. So when it comes to managing, Barry knows what he's talking about. Barry, how about me bringing up some old championship stuff to you, buddy? Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> I need a little bit of free publicity once in a while. Oh, what the heck? You earned it, man. You won a championship. you got to go ahead and promote championship stuff, right? Well, I had I had good players. If you have good players, like somebody told me years ago, when you got the mules, you lose. And when you got the horses, you win. All right, well, let's talk about those good players. we got a little bit of fun with this one, okay, Barry? Why don't you talk about, and by the way, Fort Lauderdale Stadium has been demolished, as well as Lockhart Stadium. They're building a uh, uh, soccer facility over there. So I drove by the, our old stomping grounds. Not there no more, Bear. I've, and I feel it hurt me to have to drive by there to see our old stomping grounds gone. So, you know, but Lewis is a big expert on baseball. Why don't you go ahead and talk about some of the players that you managed in both of those two spots? 
with the with the Yankees, uh, probably my um, best player on that ball club uh, as far as position players was Orestes Estrada, who uh, went on to play in the big leagues and uh, also played in Japan. Was actually a pretty big star in Japan, and I uh, had uh, Lombardi was my catcher. We had we had a good handful of uh, of pitchers that got to the big leagues. Eric Plonk was one of those. Uh, as far as prospects go, it would be hard to beat the team I had at Myrtle Beach. I believe off of that ball club, uh, I think about ten of those kids end up going to the big leagues. So um, there was a you know, really good group of kids, really good pitchers. Uh, uh, Pat Henkin went on to win a Cy Young Award with the Toronto Blue Jays. He was probably our uh, prospect pitcher that year, so uh, I was fortunate. When you, like I said, when you got really good players, it's uh, more about not screwing it up than it is what you do to help them win. Well, the one thing with the Yankees compared to the Blue Jays, though, the Yankees' philosophy was you obviously develop guys and trade them away for more proven talent, where Toronto doesn't have the financial resources so they can develop them and see them from point. Uh, from one point to another. So you had philosophically different ways that, that they were doing it, too. That's true. I mean, the Blue Jays, uh, they really had a, a very, very stout scouting department. And uh, as far as athletes go, they, they were big on drafting kids that had great athletic ability. Uh, I think that from that standpoint, we certainly had much better athletes in the Blue Jays organization than we did when I was with the Yankee organization. And uh, probably some of that's changed now. It looks like the philosophy is a little different with the Yankees now. They are developing. Right. And they, you know, they end up developing players in the, in the late 90s uh, that ended up being, you know, the, the core of their World Series championship teams through the mid-90s to the 2000s. So they, they ended up using a lot of players from within the organization. I think, you know, that's really becoming the philosophy of a lot of these clubs that are doing well now. All right, let's talk about your career, and I'm going to throw a hypothetical out because we have the respective championship series going, although who knows from what I've heard. Uh, I don't have an update on the Washington score, but I know you can get it. That game, I believe, has just started. It is scoreless right now, but, you know, I mean, the Nats have a chance to wrap it up tonight, and, you know, Barry, you've spent your career, you know, as a backstop, so you have an idea of what pitching is like. As far as... I mean, if I had a question to ask you now, what do you think makes the Nationals dangerous should they win tonight in advance to the World Series other than their starting pitching? Well, just let me give you a quick update. They're up 7 to nothing, so their chances are, they are pretty really? good to win. Oh, nice. so, are they real? Uh, well, thank you I, for the update. We're supposed to do but you're giving it to us. So I know you're paying attention. Uh, I think what uh, makes both the Houston Astros and the Nationals very dangerous is their starting pitching. You know, most of these other clubs are using guys that are starting and giving them three and four and five innings where these guys get you deep into the bull into the to the game so you can shorten up the use of your bullpen and i think that's what makes them very dangerous uh, is that starting pitching you got uh, scherzer and, and strasburg and corbin so you got three really good pitchers on the nationals starting and then you have the same thing with houston with verlander cole and granke so uh, I, I think that philosophy makes them different than most of these other clubs since they really rely on their, their starting pitch of getting, getting them deep into the game. Let's use a hypothetical. <laughs> I love hypotheticals, you know that. If the Yankees were to play the National Slash Expos in the World Series, who are you rooting for? 
Well, I got relationships with both. Uh, <laughs> I, if it was the Yankees and the Nationals, I would probably root for the Yankees. Really? Uh, I still have an affinity for the Yankees. Okay. Do you? So yeah, I mean, I think I, you know, I think I'd probably root for the Yankees in that series. If it was the other, if it was Houston, I, I, I really do like the Houston. I like their ball club. I like their players. I think they get along well together. They seem to have a good camaraderie there. And I, you know, they kind of came up through base through the minor leagues together, similar to how the Yankees did in the '90s when they had that core group of guys with with Jeter and others coming up through the system. And Barry, I guess that leads me to this question, and Scott kind of posed it, but I'm going to build off of it and you know go off on a little bit of a tangent on my part. But but still, if if you, if the Yankees were to meet with Washington in the World Series, and you know by my own opinion whether whether that matters or not, I genuinely think Houston wins this series just because of that three-headed monster that is their rotation. Though Grinky has had a little bit of struggles in the postseason, don't you think that Washington would be the preeminent favorite given their starting pitching? I understand the Yankees can, you know, out, can beat them with their bullpen, and they have a myriad of guys who can get it done. But I watched Severino today, and the dude didn't make it out of the fifth inning. He only pitched in the fifth inning once this year. And, yes, that's because of the injury with his lat, and he had some shoulder tendonitis. But I just think when you throw a Strasburg out there, and then you have Anibal Sanchez, who has authored two bids now in the postseason of six-plus innings without allowing a hit, I genuinely think that, you know, Washington could be a scary team. They're kind of like this team of destiny like, you know, the 2011 Cardinals, the 2004 Red Sox, the 2015 Royals. This team that's just getting hot at the right time, and they have enough of the resources there, also have a fantastic lineup that doesn't get enough credit, and I genuinely think could give the Yankees a run for their money. Well, I I agree. I I think that uh, that starting pitching does make us a difference maker. And, you know, I, I personally appreciate ball clubs that rely on their starting pitching rather than, you know, sort of the, the new wave of, of, of using these, you know, the relievers. And, and, you know, the thing of it is, in the long run, uh, there's a good reason why relievers became relievers. Most of the time it's because they, they, they had a difficulty being starters. And when you keep running relievers out there, that gives hitters a lot more chances see them and they're going to have a lot more chance of being successful against relievers if you overuse them and that seems to be what a lot of clubs are having to do now because they've gone away from really relying on good start pitching totally and i and that's the case with the likes of say a chad green on the yankees who was at one point a starting pitcher but they've worked him in as an opener this year and it has worked i mean i you, I understand you did play in an era where the analytics weren't necessarily a thing as they are now, but the Yankees have succeeded with him. They're 11-4 in games that he's opened to start the season. But, you know, Scott kind of had a question that I'll let him ask you about this kind of opener strategy, but I'll let him get that to you right now. Okay, yeah, Barry, um, now that we're talking about openers, you know, um, and the uh, relievers, I, that was really unheard of until recently, back in the day when you and I were doing this full-time. I mean, you know, starters went seven, eight innings deep, and I, you know, of course, obviously these guys are being paid more money, but to me, the ideal situation is get your starter seven and then eight, and maybe get a complete game now and then give the bullpens uh, the day off. But that doesn't happen anymore. What are your thoughts about openers? Well, well, look, I I am uh, I believe in the uh, analytics to a certain point, 
Right. And I think if it if it allows you to get to the World Series using that type of uh, you know the opener and etc. and be successful, that's good. Obviously, Tampa Bay sort of was the pioneer in that. And they've had some success with it. But I believe at the end of the day, uh, if you're going to have a dynasty type of operation where you're going to win in the World Series, not just get there but win, uh, you got to have you got to have a couple really good starters. You got to have a real number one, and you got to have that borderline number one, number two, and that's what both the Nationals and uh, and the Astros have. And you know, Granke, you know, historically non-power pitchers have not done it, have not fared as well in the World Series. I think uh, Maddox is an example of mm-hmm. that. Granke, they're not as as you know as their efficiency is not as good in the World Series. I think power pitchers have done much better. And you know, these guys rely on those power pitchers, both ball clubs. They got the high strikeout ratio. Don't have to, you know, the ball doesn't get put in play as often. So I, I really like the fact that you have starters that can actually get you deep into the game. And I agree with that. I mean, Greinke used to be a power pitcher. The thing with him is he's very much devolved. We've a lot of what a lot of people say now, and I can attest to this, is that I genuinely think he is the modern version of Greg Maddox because. His fastball isn't what it was when he was in Kansas City winning a Cy Young Award with like a 2.16 ERA in 2009 when he was throwing 94 to 97 miles an hour with that sharp curveball. I mean, now he likes to change speeds. I mean, the differentiation on the velocity of his fastball and his changeup is like three miles an hour. And you'd think that a pitcher like that wouldn't be successful because, you know, what made Pedro Martinez so great was he was throwing 98, but then he threw that Bugs Bunny changeup. That was 83, 82 miles an hour. So that degree of separation is what creates the off-balance approach in the hitters. But, you know, Granke's managed to stay successful because he can hit his spots. Although, I di- and I genuinely agree with you. I mean, we can look at Clayton Kershaw, and we won't go too much on that given his postseason struggles. But, um, you know, he's not a power pitcher anymore. He used to be 93 to 95, but he's 90 to 92. And hitters can catch up to that a lot easier than they can, despite, you know, a deceptive delivery that Kershaw has. But, I mean, I, again, I totally agree with you. Granke would be the only chink in the Astros' arm, armor as far as those three starters go if they were to get to the World Series, and I genuinely think they will just because of how good Cole and Verlander have been and will continue to be as this postseason moves forward. But, you know, I and I agree with you. I do miss the days of starting pitchers going seven, eight innings. I mean, I really immersed myself fully into baseball when Roy Halladay was throwing 240 innings a season, and we're not going to see that anymore just because – yeah, roles are so specialized, but I think money has played a big part in it. Guys are getting paid so much money that front offices recommend to their managers to kind of reserve these guys for the big situations. We saw it with Strasburg in 2012 when the Nationals, I think, of the times that they've had now, other than this, they had the best chance to win the World Series. They won 98 games. Bryce Harper was a 19-year-old phenom that we were heralding as like the next big thing in baseball. And Strasburg, his first year back from Tommy John, who was terrific, he didn't pitch in the postseason, and the Nationals began this string of losing in the division series four consecutive years. But, you know, now they're turning him loose, and he's kind of been this guy that you and Scott are kind of championing, and that and a kind of guy that I wish would kind of return in the modern day of baseball. We don't really have that anymore. Well, I think it's having somewhat of an effect on the fan base as well, as far as, you know, the attendance goes. I think this modern game, the way they play it, is a little different. And, you know, seven and eight pitchers, sometimes nine pitchers in a game, that that doesn't, you know, add too much continuity in a sport that really, you know, doesn't have that fast pace to be 
begin with, like the, you know, basketball and football have. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out over the course of time. But uh, I don't think it's going to change back much. I think that, you know, I think they're, they're setting it up for these guys to basically throw five innings and then get the bullpen in there, you know. And I think you'll probably see in the next uh, contract with the Players Association, I'll I won't be surprised at all if you don't see an expansion of the roster at 26 mm-hmm. or 27. So I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. You know, the one disturbing trend that I'm noticing, Barry, and again, I'm going to use the word unheard of again, was seeing combined no-hitters. Oh, that bothers the living heck out of me. It really does. Well, those aren't. Those will be forgotten after the year that they happen. <laughs> yeah, they will. We saw that Aaron Sanchez's first start in late August with the Houston Astros. He threw six no-hit innings, and they no-hit the Seattle Mariners. We saw that in 2003 when Roy Oswald and a parade of guys combined no-hit the Yankees. Cole Hamels with the Phillies against the Braves a couple of years ago. So it's a thing, but it does get a little devalued as far as the workhorse going nine innings. But a no-hitter can happen to anybody. They're fun to watch when they're on. But, again, they're just rare, rare feats. Yeah, but when you go ahead and take a feat like that and then you divide it a couple of ways, mm-hmm. you want to talk about devaluing a feat, Barry. This is definitely the way to do it. This is something that should be a sacred accomplishment. And now we're seeing these guys being, I don't know, I do have a problem with that. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think we... Uh... We have to be a little careful in the game not to lose lose sight of some of the historic value of, of statistics because our game, you know, baseball is a game of statistics. And, uh, you know, they, it, you know, that's why people can talk about stats in baseball. You don't hear them talk about stats in many other sports. Well, we, we know that, you know, when you look at stats now and uh, before, you know, and we talk about three-headed monsters, you know, like we just alluded to with Cole, Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander, and Zach Granke. Did you ever um, catch those kind of stats uh, where you had a lot of uh, three-headed monsters back in the day? I know you played on some pretty good ball clubs. Not, not the, those kind of guys. You know, I, you know, with the Yankees when I was with the Yankees, we had Gidry and Tommy John and and others, but they're not the kind of guys that you know. Uh, when Gidry was on, and he wasn't that way when I was with him necessarily. He did win 20 games uh, after I was with the Yankees. But when he won 24, went 24 and 5 or whatever it was that one year, he was that type of guy. But, you know, it's difficult to find. You know, you got a coin toss in the, in the National or in the American League, excuse me, with Houston as to who the Cy Young Award winner is from the same team, Cole and Verlander. I mean, I've heard them talking about it lately on TV that possibly the no-hitter Verlander threw this year would give me the just enough to give him the edge. But, you know, this is probably one of those years it wouldn't be bad to have co-winners because I don't think any, either one of them was that much better than the other one. Well, I mean, I'm not sure if you're too familiar with the metric wins above replacement. And Scott always tries to stall me when I use that. But, you know, essentially what it is, if you're not, you know, I understand wins, the wins above replacement. Yes, but I do. As Go far ahead. as war goes, Verlander accumulated 7.6 wins above replacement, while Cole was 6.9, which is a, it's a very close race. And there have been a right. lot of a lot of Cy Young votes and MVPs that have been decided without really taking that into account. But that's looking historically when you go back, say, the 1992 Cy Young Award or, you know, the MVP in 1987 when George Bell won it for the Blue Jays. But 
I mean, I think Verlander's been the better pitcher, and then the 300 strikeouts is impressive. He had 300 on the note, on the dot. Cole had 326. But I genuinely think that really shouldn't matter considering the era we're in. We just set another record for strikeouts. I mean, you want to talk about pitching changes slowing the game down, but if the ball's not being put in play, oh my God, is it slow the game down? I mean, yeah, sure, outs are being added, and it's, the game's getting being closer to theoretically ending, but when you're seeing strikeouts at this frequent of a rate, I genuinely think it detracts from how great a season Cole has because they're just so dime a dozen. Anybody can strike out 200 batters nowadays. You just have to be on the mound enough to do it, and you'll probably do it because everybody's trying to swing for the fences. We, we've, yeah. we've, talked, we've talked about Ron Guidry. Why don't you uh, let everybody know what it was like to uh, catch a guy like Ron Guidry? I believe he was 25-3 and three that one year, if I remember 1978, right. 1978, Louisiana Lightning. Right. Sir. Yeah, Ron Guidry was a heck of a pitcher. 174 ERA. It was incredible that year. Yeah, he was. Uh, well, Gendry was similar to Steve Carlson. They had this real, you know, back foot slider. You know, give, give you the impression of being a, a strike, but was actually a ball. Uh, you know, so yeah, he was he was a, a power pitcher with a power slider. Uh, same way that's very similar to to uh, to Steve Carlson as far as their type of stuff they had. And they came at it from different sides, I believe. Gid- was Gidry le- Gidry was right-handed? No, and then no, Gidry was left-handed. Okay, well, left well, there you yeah. go. Yeah, and Gidry, of course, Gidry was you know five ten, five eleven, one hundred and sixty pounds, and uh, lefty uh, Carlson was six five, six six. You know, two hundred twenty-five or thirty pounds. So different physical uh, guys, but Gidry was a great athlete. Gidry used to. Uh, take fly balls to center field all during back bat practice and he would look about as good as any center fielder in the league going after the ball so hmm. he was a great athlete no kidding all right uh, let's talk about a, a potential world series matchup it looks like washington's probably going to be heading there now but we'll just say washington we'll, we'll talk about predictions now say washington against the yankees who do you have there talk about the Nationals for a minute. Bryce Harper leaves uh, and the Phillies are 81 and 81 and the Nationals are so close to getting to the World Series. Boy, isn't that incredible or what? Well, it just goes to show you. I was talking about we had to fire Martinez halfway through the season and now, you know, if he gets him to the World Series, he's got a lifetime contract. So it's just (laughs) it's funny how the game works. Uh, They got you know, they got a, a, a good club, and, you know, I think arguably it would be a good argument to say whether Soto or Harper ends up having the best long-term career as a player. So, you know, they lost a, a good player in Harper, uh, but, you know, they're going to have to pay Soto sometime, and you can't, you know, you can't pay all these guys. Right. 
30, 30 or 40 million a year. It's just, you know, you just can't do it. So you gotta, you gotta sort of pick your poison. And I, I think they, they've done that. You know, you think about their pitching staff, their pitching staff has got some huge salaries on it. Oh yeah. And not to mention Strasburg has an opt out after this season. And if he's going to use any emotional leverage, the nationals owe him four for a hundred for the next four years. If he doesn't opt out, he's going to tack on another two years to that deal at least. And you expect him to only get more expensive. Trey Turner's going to get more expensive. Mike Rizzo came out and said at the beginning of September that he gives Soto 10 years and $180 million right now. And as amazing a hitter as he is, he's 40% better than league average. The only thing that really stands in the way of him you know, becoming you know, the likes of, say, a Mike Trout or a Ronald Acuna is he's not a necessarily a good defensive player. And a lot of metrics suggest that defensive runs save, defensive wins above replacement, I think, are what kind of holds him back. Whereas Harper was a good defender from the get-go. Okay, so Barry, let's go the other way. Uh, Washington takes on Houston, and how ironic would it be that the two teams that share a spring training facility will get to share the big stage? Who do you like in that matchup? Well, I I, I like Houston from the beginning of the season, so I wouldn't go against Houston. Uh, normally, well, I don't say normally. A lot of times you'll see a team like the Nationals that has good pitching. Suddenly the, their pitchers get real hot. But you got the same thing in Houston. I think I watched the game today with uh, Cole pitching, and I didn't think he had his good stuff today, and he still threw seven shutout innings. So they're just going to be tough to beat. I think it's going to be, you know, be very, very interesting. you got – you just got really good power pitchers on both sides, and that's unusual that you have it on, you know, against both clubs. Usually, one club will have those real power pitchers, and the other one will have good pitchers, but not necessarily the real power guys. So it, it could be uh, could be a really interesting series if that's the way it ends up going. Well, well, let's talk about the Montreal Expos, the team that you played from '73 to '77. Of course, now we're they're the Nationals franchise, but now. Let's look ahead down the road. Montreal could be in line to get Major League Baseball back. How important would it be for baseball to get back in that market? And where do you think Montreal would be better suited? Would they be better suited in the Yankees division, knowing full well you have a natural rivalry between the uh, a Montreal franchise and Toronto? Well, I think it would definitely be an American League club. I think having that rivalry would be good. you got that whole... Eastern Seaboard thing with the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Blue Jays and the and the Expos that would be good. Uh, you know, I, I, I you know, Toronto. I mean, well, Toronto and Montreal are certainly more European cities than we have down here in the Lower Forty Eight. Uh, Montreal is certainly an international feeling city, uh, so I think it'd be good for baseball to come back there. But you got to get a, you know, you need a nice cozy stadium downtown Montreal, and I think they would support it. Okay. And the TV market's a little problem for them, I think, up there. That's a, probably one of the areas they'd be a little short. Now, I know that this will never happen, but we're just going to have some fun with it anyways. Have you? There's no way that Montreal and Tampa could split a team 41-41, could they? How I, think it would, I think it would be a disaster, and I think at some point the Players Association would step in. Yeah. You know, that's a you know, it's tough enough to be married and, and have a team, you know, have a family when you're living in one city, much less splitting it up into two different cities like that. I, I just think that is very problematic. 
And as far as getting a team in Montreal is concerned, we've heard a lot of traction with that. I've seen a guy like Warren Cromartie, who I believe you were teammates with in Montreal, who's been on a committee who's, you know, kind of championing this, you know, coming back to Montreal, bringing baseball back there. We haven't had baseball there since 2004. Have you been in contact with anybody, you know, in maybe the commissioner's office about this idea of, you know, getting behind some, something, a campaign to kind of get baseball back in that area? I haven't. I uh, I I talked to Warren about it. Well, it's been a handful of years ago now, but I know he's been at the forefront of that. And I think uh, Charles Bronfman's son was involved as well. So uh, you know, it's all about. Uh, I'd say it's about a stadium, and you know, now we're talking about probably with a stadium, a minimum probably around two billion dollars of investment. So. You know, this is big boy stuff now. It's not, you know, it's not like you can be a little fella and get involved in Major League Baseball anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing that came to mind, I, I don't know about you, but I'm really be, uh, befuddled by the fact that the Tampa Bay Rays struggle to even draw people despite the fact that they have a great record. Uh, do you have an opinion on that? Uh, I think, you know, I've got a real good friend of mine lives in Tampa, and we talk about this quite often, and, you know, his one of his opinions is just well, two things. The stadium is, is not the easiest ballpark to get to. It's not right. really a real cozy ballpark to go to ball games at. Uh, I think if you put a – I think in order for Tampa – I, I like Tampa long-term. I don't like Miami long-term for a ball club, but I like Tampa – and I think the reason uh, the demographics are changing over there is becoming a little more high tech. Uh, you know, you got the you got the beach, you got other things that are I think are changing, helping change the demographics. And uh, I think if you put a destination stadium there, where you could also do things once you got to the ballpark, almost make it like an amusement park with baseball, and have baseball be the be, be the real focus of it. Uh, so when families came to visit Disney World, they put uh, you know Tampa and the Tampa Rays on their list of things to do while they're in Florida. I think maybe you could make something happen there. But you're right; they've got good baseball there, and they just haven't supported it very well. Well, I can tell you right now that that's a horrible area. Uh, first of all, the traffic getting across 275 is ridiculous, and I can also tell you that you're dead even right about the Miami situation. They only took that Orange Bowl site because that was given to them for nothing. So, yeah, there's. A, I think if it were in Hillsborough County, and I remember you, you're old enough to know this, how they had baseball uh, city out in Haines City back then when the Royals trained there. That was unbelievable. Yeah. Do you remember that place? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. Sure, I'm sure. A lot of mosquitoes, too, as I remember. Yeah. So, yeah. But I agree with you on the Tampa side. It's a shame. I think that uh, it can... Uh, uh, work out there and the Miami situation. If you think you're banking on a bunch of uh, Hispanics to sell it, and the difficulty it is to get from Broward County and Palm Beach County there, it's a struggle. Lewis, one thing you want to add before we wrap things up? Yeah, so I, I went over some notes pre show, and I always love seeing how guys do against, you know, the best in the business. And I saw, see that you hit Tug McGraw pretty well in your day. You actually hit some pretty good pitchers pretty well. I don't know if you know this, but you hit 467 in 17 plate appearances against them, and you did pretty well against guys like Bob Forshild, Downing, Tommy John. You hit 357 against. What was it like facing a guy like McGraw? You know, very eccentric personality, almost like a Bill Lee, who you also faced as well. But tell me about what it was like 
you know, facing a guy like well, McGraw? Obviously, you know, with, with uh, Tug, I played with him and against him. And, uh, you know, I learned when I, you know, caught him in the bullpen in di- different situations. The, the reason a lot of hitters had problems with him, they, they always were looking for his screwball. And I just threw the screwball away in my mind when I faced him because, uh, you know, I just hit off the other stuff because he was really, really straight as a string with his fastball. And if you if you if you just got the took the screwball out of the equation, then you had a lot more success against him. Um, you know, to be honest with you, on Bob Porsche, I actually I knew what was coming. He gave his pitches away, he tipped his pitches. So, you know, I just happened to be able to see know what was coming. So I had a little bit of advantage against him. But there was a lot of other guys that gave me plenty of trouble to even things out. <laughs> I mean, hey, you hit three fifty three against Phil Necro, and you even hit a home run off of him, so you knew the knuckleball was coming. I think everyone did. <laughs> there you go. Well, all I can tell you, Barry, I love talking baseball. I enjoyed picking your brain when I was a young writer, and I'm glad that we've been able to maintain a friendship that's stood the test of time. And the next time I do get to North Carolina, I do plan to catch up with you. I'll just have to do a little bit better job planning it so we can get it done. So, that sounds great. I, I enjoy talking some baseball. I don't get that many chances to talk with baseball people that know something about it. So it's fun being on there with you guys. Well, you know what, Barry? I'll tell you what. Uh, plan to come on sooner again, and we look forward to bringing you back. So Barry Foote, uh, everybody, uh, a very good friend of mine and a guy who, uh, to me, had a fine career uh, that spanned from 1973 to 1981 and who also had an opportunity to coach with the White Sox of 1990-91 and uh, the Mets from 92-93. So 73-81, not a bad career. Uh, and I know you've had a pretty good successful run in business as well. So, Barry, you're definitely a great story on and off the field. So thanks for being on the Sports Exchange, and we'll bring you back on uh, pretty soon. How does that sound, partner? Sounds good. Just let me know when. I'll be more than happy to. Thanks for being on the program. Enjoy the game. All right, Barry. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. So, now you've had an opportunity to talk to Mark Littell and Barry Foote. Compare and contrast your two experiences with the two. I'm I'm not going to say one was better because, like I said, you know, I basically talked to a battery mate, a pitcher and a catcher. So I got <laughs> I got to see two That's ends. That's a good point. All I right. I got to see two ends of the spectrum. I love, you know, hearing what he said about, you know, how he did so well against a guy like McGraw and the same thing with Forsh. I, you know, I mean, you know, we know tipping pitches have been a thing of forever. We've even right. seen it in the playoffs. It's kind of interesting to know a guy like Bob Forsh who had a pretty good career in the major league, spanned over a decade, you know. For a catcher, and that just reaffirms this idea that catchers make the best managers. And yeah. and that's a reason why, you know, he managed guys that had some success. I saw he managed a guy, Francisco Cabrera. If anyone here knows baseball history, we know this. The Sid Bream score that won the Braves, the 92 right. pennant, where they lost right. to the Blue Jays. You know who got that hit? Francisco Cabrera. Who managed him? Barry Foote. So, again, just a little, another little nice side note there. And I wonder where he picked up some of his baseball acumen from. So it's interesting. Francisco Cabrera, also a catcher like Barry Foote. Well, and, by the way, for whatever it's worth, I did play the sport for six years, and I was a catcher. There you did, go. did I ever tell you that? No, you did tell me that, but you know you know what you and me have in common? That Mark Littell have in common? They played baseball in the major leagues. We didn't. So, I mean, oh, we can only just... deal. Oh, come on. You yeah. can't even compare we, them. We see not... that. That's what I'm saying, though. They're on two different sides yeah, of the spectrum. Yeah, but let me tell you something, Weiss, okay? Hold on. I knew how to go ahead and tip. I knew how to go ahead and, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Um, now you got me uh, 
flabbergasted. flabbergasted. Yeah, and I got me a little tongue tied there. No, I remember when I used to go ahead and frame pitches quite a bit. I took a beating back there, like you wouldn't believe. And when I caught, pal, okay, I was only like 70, 80 pounds taking a beating. I didn't have the old luxury of a nutty buddy that Mark Lattell developed. Yeah. Uh, my dad had a sporting goods store back in Oak Park, Michigan. But I enjoyed catching because, you know what, it is a thinking man's position. Mm -hmm. It's one of two positions on the diamond outside of pitching that you're in the game at all times. And catchers generally do complete yeah. games where pitchers don't complete yes, games. Yes, sir. And I would argue that catchers are the pitcher's best friends. Other than the umpire that you establish a report with, but your catcher has a part in establishing that report with, too. Catchers will help you get a lot of strikes that you won't normally get. I mean, Greg Maddox didn't have a good relationship with Javi Lopez. That's why he always preferred a guy like Eddie Perez. Right. But they had that relationship. And, you know... I always had good relationships with my catchers, not only because I went to school with them and I only played up and through high school, but because, you know, we talked about the game plan together because me right. and the catcher, the pitcher and the catcher themselves, we're responsible for pretty much what happens. We're responsible for where the right. ball goes. Well, I'll admit to you that I got nailed for catcher's interference all the time to make sure they got the ball before I could I mean, you did tell me a story like that. I would. I'm just being frank with you, man. You got thrown out of the game once, didn't you? No, I never did get thrown out of the game at all. Okay. I, I, but I'll tell you what, I used to talk the umpire's ear off all the time and distract him to get those pitches any way that I can get an edge for my pitcher. I yeah, I mean, go. if he's Not that that should surprise so you, So he'll right? say strike, right? Yeah. Uh, I, mean. I, I didn't go that way. I just, hey, you know, that was a little bit, you know, you owe me one here. You know, it's just about manipulating the system, distracting him a little bit, frame the pitches, and all of a sudden my pitchers are in a position to win. He, I want to briefly touch on something he said, and I'll be brief with it, but I love what he said, that baseball is a game of statistics, and it's kind of true. I mean, like, you know, your, your diehard NFL fan may know who's the all-time leader in passing touchdowns, but... There's just numbers in baseball that are so universal, and you right. can pretty much ask somebody who's not even the biggest fan of baseball, and they'll know that 56 is Joe DiMaggio. If I were to say 714 to you, who am I talking about? Babe Ruth. Right. If I were to say, you know, Al Downing, what, you know, what offensive player am I talking about? I'm talking Hank Aaron. Well, you're a different breed, although. Even... Well, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. Well, what I'm saying is, and he's right, baseball is a game of statistics, right. and we tend to evaluate players on the basis of that. There are, there obviously are, like, you know, physical means that we look to evaluate players, you know, maybe, you know, like that, you know, Dan Vogelback with the Seattle Mariners, respectively, great hitter, but he's a, def as he designated hitter because of his size, we don't look to him to be a good defensive first baseman, and he doesn't play first base because we don't look to him to do that because of his, the physicality that he exudes. Well, you're a different cat anyways. You know every number on the darn planet, so but, it doesn't matter. But no, but I... More power to you, though. No, I mean, Barry's totally right, and I love... He's kind of... It's like Bob Uecker. I mean, guy's got a sense of humor, and he hit good pitchers. It's the same thing. Bob Uecker hit Sandy Koufax pretty well, and this guy, you know, hit Tug McGraw pretty well, so... And Phil Necro and a bevy of other really great major league players. But, yeah, I mean, he reaffirms that idea that baseball is, you know, it's a numbers game. And that I think that is one of the myriad of things that makes it singular. All right, we are live here on the South Florida Tribune Broadcasting Network. And joining us right now is Bill Winters. And, Bill, welcome back to the Sports Exchange. How are you, buddy? What's up, Motor? Motor. Well, I'll tell you what, get ready for another edition of Motor Mouth of Wild Bill Winters tomorrow which we'll talk about the XFL draft. But before we do that, we get to talk about the Lions and the Green Bay Packers and that officiating. Tell me about those plays. Were they, were they uh, big gaps or what? Yeah, they were just uh, stupid. I don't know how to put it any other way. And uh, 
happening in the Lions game. It's happening throughout the league, uh, and it's not working. So we got to redirect and learn how to master this technology by uh, making some uh, adjustments. Yeah, I mean, really. Uh, both of those two plays come from a guy, okay, that's never had those happen before. You know, his credibility is what it is, and all of a sudden he gets a uh, flag for both. That, to me, is mind-boggling. Well, you know, you look, you look at it this way, Scott. We've got holding, and I'm a lineman. Uh, I can tell you some of the holding calls are absolutely ridiculous. Uh, roughing the passer. Uh, honest to God, they're so ticky-tack right now that when a guy like Troy Aikman's jumping out of the booth, you know you got a problem. Uh, pass interference, uh, subjective. Uh, I think there, there have been 25 uh, reviews on pass interference, only one overturn. Uh, but they're just missing them. Uh, and then the hands to the face. So we've got four uh, avenues that we, uh, the NFL need to adjust uh, to adjust it because the integrity of the game is uh, you know, being lost. Right. And people are becoming incredibly frustrated. And like remember I told you before, I used to usually use the pendulum model. You know, to the left is uh, liberalism and safety and uh, social justice and all that. And all the way to the right, okay, is money and, uh, you know, those types of things. And that pendulum has to swing back to the middle uh, because we're so far to the left right now that we actually have an epidemic of ridiculous calls that are going too far to protect the safety of the game. And it's ruining the game at the same time. Not even to mention, there was a, a video that surfaced on Twitter last night that showed the Packers, before, I believe they were on defense, had 13 men on the field. And, and that penalty wasn't called against them. I mean, I thought we had this yeah. problem in 2012 when we had the replacement refs at the start of that season. But what is this? Yeah, I mean, and, this has yeah. been terrible, man. Right, then the Lions get nailed for 12. But obviously, somehow the math doesn't work. Well, you know, uh, there's, uh, I, I saw one of the head coaches, Jack Del Rio, talking about it. Uh, you know, the refs are pretty good, but I think they need more training and need more experience. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe have them do this full time because uh, the hand is quicker than the eye. When you don't have a lot of experience, uh, some of these refs are just guilty of guessing. I mean, it's... Or missing things completely. And, uh, you know, it's just, like I said, it's, it's that too, Lewis, uh, you know, too many men in the field. It's just missing too much. It's pretty bad when I go to look up officiating on Twitter, and before I type in OFF, I see officiating Lions Packers as the third trending thing in that Google search. So, I mean, this thing has sparked a lot of outrage from owners to players. I mean, there's Barry Sanders making comments on this thing. Barry Sanders, who infamously does not have a good relationship with the Lions because of the instability that ensued during his tenure there. But, I mean, come on, man. Like, what is going on with these refs? I don't think, you know, I've learned a long time ago not to take two things too seriously because I remember watching a few years ago Kansas City playing the Pittsburgh Steelers in the playoffs. And all the defensive end was doing was running past the defensive, uh, the offensive tackle, mm-hmm. uh, getting about a football uh, past him, uh, and then crashing to the ground. And because the uh, uh, offensive tackle had his hands extended, they called him holding. And they called it two or three times and killed the game. And uh, I had that happen to me in the Great Cup. If you watch my YouTube channel, you'll see I get called for holding, and the guy, all the guy did was run by me. And because I had my hands extended past my, uh, uh, my waist uh, going into the right as the guy was rushing up the field, even though I didn't even touch him or just kind of shoved him a little bit, he was holding. 
And, you know, I, I just sort of hold it and grabbing. So it's completely subjective. Uh, that's why you can't take things too seriously today. But in this world, with the kids, people gambling, okay, and trying to relax, all right, and, and watch a game, you don't need to see so many flags. You don't need to see so many tick tac calls or missed calls. Or, you know, it just it's compounding to the point now where we've got to address the issue maybe with something like a sky dam where we can have somebody overrule these things from above uh, and also uh, maybe tone down some of these calls that are ticky-tack. Uh, you know, I've just seen games be influenced. I mean, that, that is probably going to cost the Lions their season. Yeah. Unfortunately. They've gone from first place to last place. And ironically, this is an organization that has been plagued by these kinds of things. When you look at the history, the Calvin Johnson rule became uh, a rule as a result of what took place at Soldier Field. That that wasn't good enough. I think if you go ahead and predate back to the Dallas Cowboys about that pass interference and now this, and I'm sure that there's a lot of other ones, this poor organization gets hit with a lot of these um, bad calls. And uh, obviously they struggle through the years, but don't give me any other reasons to have issues, you know, because, you know, they played a good football game. The one thing I, a lot of people are saying, though, that you can't uh, get into a field goal kicking contest with the Packers. I get it, but let's be realistic. It's one thing to have one call like that, but now the NFL's even admitted that one of those calls shouldn't have been made either, Bill. Yes. No argument here. They're affecting the integrity of the game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and unlike college football, which reviews every single play on the planet, you know, how, how many plays can you review until these games go into three, three and a half hours? I mean, where is there a line to be drawn, Bill? Well, uh, I think there, there's an answer a little bit in reading some, uh, what some of the other people have said. If we have a, some guy above uh, who basically, at an instant time, can overrule something or call something uh, that's been, you know, flagged. Uh, then we can speed up the game a little bit uh, or not lose more time to it and maybe cut down uh, the number of uh, uh, seconds between plays. Uh, you're losing the younger audience because of the games are too long to begin with. There's flags on every play. Uh, and it's just, you know, we've got to make that adjustment back to the middle uh, where we're not making so many calls. And then if we do see something that's subjective, then we have a way to get a quick uh uh, remedy to the situation and also someone can also uh, overrule something that maybe not be called if the rep doesn't throw a flag on let's say something like pass interference somebody from above who has an aerial view of it who's watching it can basically swap the game and, and do it so you know, I think there's a way to do it but they're going to have to sit in a room uh, and uh, you know make the adjustment you know technology is here to stay but I don't think that we need to be having it so far to the left now that uh, you know, it's slowing down the game, hurting the integrity, and I'm pretty confident that somehow, some way, they'll make the adjustment because they're still finding their way through this. Yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know, it just blows me away that you can have so much technology, but yet you still can't get the calls right. I mean, even hockey's not used the technology to a point where at least they're, when they saw an issue with the goal situation, that they've even gotten to a point where they're finally getting some of those right. But the NFL is such a much bigger industry uh, monetarily than hockey and yet with all the money and resource available we continue to see more talk away from the football games for something that's totally unnecessary uh let, let me go over one piece of breaking news with you that came in and tell me your thoughts about it uh, the jacksonville jaguars bill did a good job holding out 
and they shipped Jalen Ramsey for two uh, first-round picks and a fourth-round pick. We have a few minutes to go on this. What are your thoughts about that trade, uh, Bill? What did they trade him to? Los Angeles Rams. Well, you're getting some new information. Good. Uh, uh, yeah, I just got in the door and watching the Nationals right now. No big deal. Uh, yeah, Marcus Peters also got traded uh, today. Right. The Ravens. Uh, from the Rams. Right, All right. so... But Jalen Ramsey, we could probably talk about this a little bit more, but we have a couple minutes to go. The Jaguars, I give them a lot of credit. They held out. They got their two number ones, and they've got a fourth-round pick to go with it. Uh-huh. For Ramsey, what do you, who uh, who gets the better of that trade, Jacksonville or the Rams? Future versus uh, present. I think it's a wash. Yeah? Because uh, Tlaib is out. Right. Uh, so they've got to make some adjustments over there. There's only one DB, so it's how they play as the unit back there. So I would say right now it's a wash. It's a toss-up to who, who got the better deal. Okay, Lewis has a quick question, then we'll preview tomorrow's show. Yeah, Go ahead. Bill, I made this point with Anthony Wood earlier where I thought that the trade of Ramsey and the acquiring of the first-round picks, which they got in return for him, was like a signal that I believe they have a little bit more faith in Minshew than we expected. Maybe they're going to use those pieces to go after somebody in the offseason. You know, when the draft is, comes around 2020, they have a first-round draft pick in 2021 as well. You know, maybe they draft somebody that's a big part in his development. Maybe, say, a wide receiver. They work to shore up the offensive line. You know, I just want your take on that. You know, see if I, maybe I'm going somewhere if I'm just noodling with my thoughts. No, uh, I think uh, today it's a little different. Now, i got four quarterbacks, and there are four of our kids, by the way that are low-round draft choices that are leading ball clubs and doing a good job. The kid of Carolina is doing a good job. Uh, Minshew is doing a good job. Uh, there's, I think, two other youngsters that are they're doing a really good job leading ball clubs right now. So I think that we're going to get to the point where we're going to stop paying astronomical amounts of money uh, to players at the quarterback position uh, because it can really affect your team if the guy isn't delivering. So, uh, you know, I think it's a good move for some of these ball clubs to stack number one picks but maybe not have to spend it all on quarterbacks and, and spread it out a little bit. So, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, you're never going to hurt yourself uh, getting draft choices for uh, proven players, particularly when you're swapping them and it's a wash. Okay, well, let's talk about tomorrow's show. As everybody knows, uh, we have our uh, weekly show, Motor Mouth and Wild, Bill Winters and Bill. I know it's uh, something you've been paying attention to all day. I know you'll do a lot of homework for our audience tomorrow, but we're going to focus on the XFL, something you're very close to. So what are your thoughts about what our listeners can look forward to tomorrow, Bill? Well, I think you're going to find some quarterbacks that are going to get some reps in the XFL, and then once the XFL season's over, get a chance to play in the National Football League. And uh, that's uh, the contracts kind of came out, so that's one of the things that the XFL is going to allow it to do. Uh, and I think you're going to see some players get some reps and uh, play their way into the league. So we might see a little shift in the amount of money that's being paid to certain college players and maybe uh, getting these uh, monies being spent elsewhere to build a better team. Right. Are there any... Better, better products. I know we'll get to this tomorrow, but what are your thoughts about Cardell Jones landing in D.C.? Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, right away, you, know, you, you, I guess you have some people in the media jumping the gun and, you know, talking about Haskins and all that. And, you know, the kid get in there and let him play. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't really have any opinion right now. And I'll, it's too early on the XFL. Uh, 
Right. No, and the reason right. I say that, a lot of the players are going to be sitting out that aren't going to sign all right, until uh, the, you know, the end of the year because they could get activated in the National Football League. Hmm. You know, guys like Ryan Mallett, those types of guys. So there's going to be another draft uh, towards the end of the year. And you're going to be picking up a lot of these guys that are in the NFL right now with developmental rosters or guys that got some playing time. And, uh, you know, they're probably going to go into the XFL as well. So, you know, the XFL is really trying to find quarterbacks. Uh, and I think this league is going to allow uh, some guys that are going to, you know, get a chance to develop. So maybe we'll have some more Minshews and some more Allens. What's the other kid's name? Bailey? Is that right, his name? Right, quarterback? Right. Mm-hmm. Is the name escapes me right now? Yeah. There's one other one out there right now. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, a lot of guys are starting to learn how to read coverages in college uh, and coming out and adjusting to the pro game where maybe five or six years ago, it wasn't the issue. Uh, you know, that was the issue. You know, you have guys that can read coverages. So, uh, you know, you get guys that are coming out of colleges now and being able to play the pro game a lot easier. Okay. All right, well, just so you know, all right, we'll talk about the XFL, and I'm sure we'll come up with a few other things, but... I'm looking forward for our next uh, opportunity to watch uh, uh, Motormouth and Wild Bill Winters. So, Bill, uh, do a little homework on the XFL. We'll talk about it, and uh, maybe we'll have some other uh, football notes that we can bring up to complement it. Anything you want to ask, Lewis, Bill, tonight? Nope. Nope. Lewis, always a pleasure. All right. Good speaking to you again, Bill. All right. Then uh, I will talk to you guys uh, uh, next week, hopefully, and Motor, I'll talk to you tomorrow night. You bet. Well, Bill, thank you very much for being on there. Enjoy the rest of the uh, baseball game that we're probably glad we're missing anyway. It's 7-4 right now, so it's somewhat of a game now. Oh, well, 7-4. It's become a game. Yeah. All right. Well, that's okay. Actually, when I get out of here, I'll be watching the Detroit Red Wings and the Vancouver Canucks. So, uh, yes. uh, uh, hockey, you know, you've heard of it, right, Bill? You know, we yes. play them back home in Detroit. So, all right, with that said, well, of course, you ought to know. You played in the CFL. They played up there, too. So, all right, Bill, you and I will be talking tomorrow. Get ready for the show. But meanwhile, have yourself a great night, and thanks for uh, being on again, buddy. Appreciate you, bro. All right. All right Take care, Bill. Have a good night. Bye. Our next guest is going to be uh, Damon Knight, and uh, he's obviously uh, in Detroit and it's pretty safe to say we know what he'll be talking about, don't we, Lewis? Talking some hockey with you, I presume. No, no, actually, he won't. He'll be talking with the Lions and the Packers. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah, well, that's definitely something of topic. I mean, it's funny that he talked the XFL. I believe the XFL, wasn't that a thing earlier in the 2000s? And now, you uh, know, Vin- yeah. Vince McMahon's bringing <laughs> it back. Well, wait till I bring on Michael Keller here. He'll talk about it. Uh, that's... Uh, but that's for a future show. But, yeah, I mean, Bill uh, Winters has played in a lot of different pro <laughs> He's talking about a guy that's been around the block. Mm-hmm. He's definitely been around the block for sure. So Yeah, uh, I mean, it's funny. Some of the names on this list that I'm reading right now, Landry Jones, I think really him playing in the XFL, he's 30 years old. I remember watching him as a backup to Roethlisberger when he got hurt a couple years right, ago. Right, 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 right. And he was relatively unimpressive. I didn't really see anything that stuck out. The dude is, like I said, he's 30 years old. I really think the last chance he has at playing competitive football is through the XFL or maybe he goes to the AFL. Because at this point, given the his arena age, football league. Yeah, he, I'm saying though. These well, are, first of all, let me just give you some info. I'm glad you brought it up though. Uh, the, his coach uh, in the XFL was his college coach, Bob Stoops. Mm-hmm. So I think you're okay there. Right, really but do. what I'm saying is, okay. I genuinely think those are the only two avenues he has left. I don't think teams are interested right. in a 30 year old. He's a practice squad player at best. He'll sign and hold the clipboard <laughs> if anything. Just because what we saw in the NFL though was brief. It wasn't impressive. Eight touchdowns, seven interceptions. You know, you know, 
not great, but I just think giving his age and what we've seen in that small sample, he's not going to get another shot in the NFL. But the XFL, you know what Vince McMahon is all about, you know, shaking things up with the WWE, and he's doing mm-hmm. it again with the XFL. So, I mean, you know, draft as much as you can, my friend. And I have a question for you. And yeah, what's Billy, that? Bill briefly touched on it. I've actually heard a little bit about this when the XFL was announced that it was going to come back. Yeah. And that was that I believe some players could forego college but still – and playing the XFL, say if they're getting, because we've had this debate forever, and I actually debated Lane Kiffin about this, about whether college athletes should be played or paid. I'm sorry. And I was wondering if players may forego college altogether and just go to the XFL, build up some of their stats, and then maybe get drafted. I understand the competition level in college is that you're going up against guys who will eventually at one point be in the NFL to varying degrees of success. But, you know, I'm wondering from you to me, or from me to you asking this, do you think that could possibly be a thing? You know what? I wouldn't hold your breath a whole lot with it. I think the XFL needs to establish instant credibility by going with more veterans. I'm not going to sit here and tell you, though, Lewis, okay, that you may run across a few guys that they'll probably bring in. I'm not going to go there. But I think when you're a brand-new league, you want to get in as many established names Mm -hmm. as you can. And there's enough of those out there to actually go ahead and um, you, know, you can use and utilize yeah. in this league. I mean, Luis Perez, a guy that was a star at Birmingham, has gotten a job. Connor Cook, formerly of Michigan State, landed. Mm-hmm. And there'll be a bunch of other guys. And they've actually got some pretty good coaches there, too. Funny as enough, well. not a major correlation, but um, Bill Veck, famous baseball executive, once had Eddie Goodell, three foot six, you know, literally suffering from dwarfism, taking a bat for the St. Louis Browns in 1951. As a promotional stunt, kind of what the XFL is doing. And then eight years later, he wants to generate some more buzz when he's with the White Sox. So he has these little aliens come on the field. And who's one of those aliens? Eddie Goodell. So I get what you're saying. You know, bring somebody in who has somewhat of a reputation right. to, you know, generate some income and some buzz for your Well, it's funny story. how you say that. I actually uh, met Belvec many, many years ago here in South Florida. But I got to know his uh, son, Mike, over at the baseball winter meeting. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I can just say I've... Met a few people through the years, mm-hmm. okay? So, but with that said, you know, uh, we'll wait on Damon Knight uh, to talk about the Lions. And, uh, of course, uh, just so you know, folks, our guest list tonight uh, has been Ryan Scorud led it off with uh, doing the fantasy football. Anthony Woods, the NFL insider. Tom Shanahan will be a new uh, regular on the program talking about uh, the ACC uh, basketball as well as football. And, of course, uh, Barry Foote, Bill Winters, and, of course, Wayne uh, Damon Knight. And then we will convert to Xavier McKnight So as we wrap up the night. So with that said, I'm looking forward to you having a good time tonight, Lewis. Yeah, absolutely. I love talking with Barry, with Bill. You know, UK is always fun because of how he always seems to be in such a good mood. And, you know, again, I like somebody who, you know, he came from another, he came from the world of soccer to immerse himself in America living in Texas and, you know, just become such a big football fan is cool. You know, I'm not going to call it cultural appropriation, but again, it's pretty neat to see that he uh, that he's such a big fan. Okay, with that said, a guy who's a big fan uh, is Damon Knight, and I'm sure it was a very difficult fandom for you last night, Damon, when you're talking about the Lions uh, and the Green Bay Packers, yep. right, Damon? Yes, yes, yep. Um, that, it was just awful. Um, you know, uh, starting... With Trey Flowers getting those uh, penalties, you know, with illegal hands to the face. And on the replay, it clearly shows that he's only holding him by his shoulder pads. And so I, I didn't agree with that call. And ultimately, it ended up uh, costing us the game. Um, but 
But besides that, you know, there was other factors uh, that caused us to lose, and it was, you know, carry on Johnson, you know, only averaging 2.6 yards per carry with one touchdown and 34 yards rushing. That's unacceptable. I mean, as a starter, you need to perform at a high level almost every night, and a total of 34 yards is not going to get that done. Matthew Stafford, 265 yards passing, zero touchdowns, zero interceptions, 18 for 32. That's okay, but, you know, you need to add one or two touchdowns to, you know, your stats, you know, to propel a team to victory. Aaron Rodgers, you know, outperformed them with 283 yards, two touchdowns, and uh, one pick, uh, 24 for 39. Um, You know, those are elite numbers, and so uh, it's not – it's not good, you know, so it's, it's, they got to get better. So tell me the reaction, Detroit. Obviously, they're furious about what's going on here. You can't beat the Packers kicking five yep. field goals either. And yet, yes. I know Matt Patricia certainly isn't going to dwell on it, but let's yes. not kid ourselves. That could, this type yes. of uh, game could ruin the Lions' season, especially yep. with the fact that the Packers are sitting a luckily five and one. Yes. Yep. Um, yeah, and, and, and Prater, you know, have, happened to make five field goals. He should never be in that position to do that. He, you know, you should make like maybe two or three of those and that's it. But the reaction was, for me at least, was, you know, we're going to find out how good our team is based on, I think, tonight or in that game coming off the, the Kansas, uh, Kansas City Chiefs game. And I was severely disappointed. Um, we did turn over. We did not turn over the ball, which was really good. Uh, I thought our special teams played solid, and, and we caused you know two fumbles. And you know we, we stepped up, and we I saw some you know um, signs of uh, potential. It's just it's not going to be enough if we only you know rush for th- thirty four yards and, and put up no TDs and three drives to the red zone. So. Or the one, but you got to come away with six. So, well, uh, amazingly enough, Matthew Stafford got off to a nice start. They start that flea flicker, and you thought the Lions were well on their way. And all of a sudden, once they hit 13 points, they stalled. And then they, uh, you know, the rest of the game speaks for itself. They uh, seemed like they got off, started really well. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and and um, I I loved it. I was like, finally, we're throwing downfield. We're being aggressive. This is what we need to be. This is what we've been dying to see. And they were saying at ninety-seven-one earlier this morning that you know it looked like when Galladay caught the ball, he he kind of slowed down or just got caught you know, from behind, and he was well like within two or three yards of any Green Bay defender. And so that that's a question mark. You don't know if he's injured or not, but. You know, we just we got to make crucial uh, plays when it matters, and, and, and we got to start stepping up to the plate. So, what, what do you want to add to it? I think the you know the second week in a row where a Green Bay running back has unleashed his dual threat presence on, other than the terrible officiating yep. calls, you know Jamal Williams, yep. 136 total yards. On yep. you know, on 18 possessions was a big factor in that game. He did have a receiving yes. touchdown late. I mean, you know, Rodgers, yep. Rogers, it's interesting to see him throw an interception, and he's only thrown 81 interceptions in his career to something like over 350 touchdowns is insane. So, I mean, yeah. credit to the uh, Detroit defense for picking one off from one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time there. But, you know, I don't know, man. I mean, Stafford to me has always just struck me as this kind of quarterback that he's just never really lived up to that 
that hype. I appreciate the durability and the fact that he's been in the league now for, what, over a decade? But what have yeah. they won with him? He's pretty much been like the Marvin Lewis of quarterbacks when it comes to, yeah. you know, putting up big numbers. I look forward to watching him every Thanksgiving, and I appreciate that <laughs> while I'm eating my turkey and mashed potatoes. But I've just <laughs> never been, you know, too overwhelmingly impressed with him, and I think sooner or later they're just going to have to start looking towards the future. Yep. He'll have a future elsewhere. It's going to be like a Joe Flacco situation where Flacco won you a big game yep. seven years ago, but... You know, he may have found yep. a home somewhere else before soon, you know, just given the fact that they just have not gotten yep. done with Matt Patricia. And, you know, I don't know. It, he, he, But he's also never really had, like, other than Calvin Johnson, like a elite receiving core, too. So Yeah, well, I disagree. Yeah. Stafford's going to finish his career in Detroit. I wouldn't, wouldn't shock me, but I just don't. I, don't I mean, you know, he's never won anything with him. At least we could say with Favre and Rodgers, they have rings with their respective franchises. Why do you compare the Packers and the Lions? Are you not, let me tell you something. I'm not oh, comparing respective abilities. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Number one, okay. Now that you brought that up, yeah. I have to admit this to you too, Damon, okay? Yeah. Um, the last time they won a championship was on December 29, 1957. By the way, just so you know, yeah. that's it's my birthday. Uh, it's December yeah. 29th, and I will be 57 this year. And to make, uh, So you yeah. talked about some interesting numbers, ironically, that uh, five years before I was hatched, they won a championship. And just so you know, these two teams play... Uh, December 29th, 2019. So, wow. I, I'll, you want to talk, and then to make matters more interesting, on my birthday, okay, yep. Um, yep. on my wedding day with my wife, they played on our wedding day, January 1st, 2017. So, there's a little bit of uh, some interesting yep. numbers when it comes to dates and all that thing. So, I think the Lions are going to be pretty mad when they play the Packers at Ford Field. When I turned 57, oh, yeah. especially after what happened last night at Lambeau. Oh yeah, I'm uh, I'm looking for Trey Flowers to have an immediate impact. He's just he's gonna want to destroy Aaron Rodgers after that, um, and I think he will. And and we need that type of motivation. We need that like that boiling uh, attitude in the locker room to just let's just play these guys. Let's just give them our all. You know, lay everything on the line. You know, and I I think they'll do that. And uh, I think they're going to step up against Minnesota, and you know, I don't think it's I don't think it's going to be easy, but I think they're going to give them a run for their money. Yeah, they've been they've been competitive every game, I and mean, let's face it, yeah. I, albeit they collapsed against the Cardinals, but the win yeah. in Philly uh, and the win against the Chargers was pretty good. They obviously have a tough loss there, and then Kansas City; those are they've been in every football game for sure. So yeah. this team doesn't quit; they have a lot of fight in them. So, yes. uh, in my opinion, the uh, Detroit Lions are a team where, you know, you never know what could happen. It's what Chris Berman would say in the NFC North division. For all those hockey yeah. guys, right, Damon? I know that once upon a time <laughs> yeah. we had the Norris division. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, I've heard him say multiple times that we have the best division in football. Well, we do. I don't know if that's true. Well, I, I think but... we do. Well, think about the, the, the length of the yeah. rivalries. The Lions and the Packers played for the 178th yes. time. Tell me another division in football that where these guys have played each other for that many times. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't name you any. Well, you uh, won't. Not, not off the top of my 
head-to-head. I mean, the, the only comparable uh, rivalry that I can come up with is not even in the sport of football. It's in baseball. So uh, no, but we're Boston. talking football. I don't care about baseball. Yeah. It's another night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking but, about the yeah. NFL. I believe Bears-Packers is a pretty – Well, that's yeah, probably the longest yeah. 200 one. meetings, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but we're talking yes. about – th- you're talking between the Bears, the Packers, and the Lions. They yes. always have the long run. Oh, yeah, rivalry. absolutely. The Minnesota Vikings came way later, okay? Yeah. They yeah. did. They were one of the pioneers in the league for sure. So, yeah, with Randy Moss and uh, Dante Culpepper. Yeah, yep. well, Minnesota's yes. had a pretty uh, a good existence too. Yet they've been uh, they haven't won it all at all. But but re- but regardless, the Lions and the Packers, the Packers and the Bears, yes, uh, are definitely three of the uh, best rivalries in all of football. And all, yep. and if you need the numbers to justify it, talk about the, how their longtime series, and then that'll definitely do it. So yeah. Any other uh, final thoughts that you want to add on the subject? Yeah, and, and, and what was the thing was that the Lions were 4-0 heading into Lambeau. They beat the Packers twice uh, in the past two years, and so I was hoping that they would you know, continue that streak, and they didn't. But uh, I think, like you said, uh, come December 29th, uh, we're going to bring it, and uh, I think it's going to be a different result. Okay, well, you know what? I hope you're right. Uh, the- my 57th birthday would be nice if the Lions win over the yes, yeah. Green Bay Packers yep, after the gift that they got last night up in Green Bay. We call it the the gift in Green Bay. And I know for all you Wisconsin people that are wondering yep. about it, too bad. You got a gift. Yeah, yeah. You do not know that. And my wife just walked in and said, you do not know that. You want to go ahead? Come on, Candy. You do not know that you got a gift. Yep. I will admit some of those calls on both sides of the ball were horrendous, but you do not know that we still would not have kicked and scored the winning field goal. Even Barry Sanders said with some of those calls, he genuinely didn't think that Stafford had enough in him with the offense to win the game. So imagine that. The best, arguably the best player in the history of your freaking franchise says that. All right, well, you know what? To be continued, you I just like getting Scott mad, Damon. It's fun. I like getting a little upset. No, I'm unflappable. I don't care. Even with the three trips to the red zone, that only adds up to 21 points if they do get those touchdowns. And we lost by two. So, I mean, uh, or no, one, excuse me. And and so we don't know if if they did convert those touchdowns that the same thing wouldn't happen again. So yeah. it, it, either way, you're not going to get me mad. I've been dealing with this forever, so longer than any yeah. of you people. It yeah, being matter. a sports fan yeah. is like having, especially one of the team who's never really fulfilled your yes. your premises of winning a championship. It's like having yeah. that lovable um, family member you just you love, even though they constantly let you down. My goodness, spoken like a real 50-year-old lat, uh, uh, down in his yeah. early 20s. But you know what? Yeah. I, we teach this kid to have opinions, and if he wants to have an opinion at my expense, I think I'm that's, okay with it. In this business, I think you're allowed to have an opinion, right? You can be objective. You think? No, you are allowed yeah, to have one. There you them. go. So. You are. That's okay. You won't get me rattled. Yeah. Because we're, I'm already, we're already we're Detroit. We're yeah. you, wait, wait. wait. We're, we're already used to it, so it doesn't make any difference. There you go. And, and I wouldn't, you know, even though the Miami Dolphins had a great history for a while, we had a hand in yep. your two Super Bowls because Don Shula once upon a time was an assistant coach for the Detroit Lions. Yep. And yeah. on that note, Xavier McKnight's going to be coming on. But you know what, uh, Damon, thanks for adding some uh, uh, interesting insights yes. on the yep. edge of the night right. after 
which once upon a time there was a super uh, soap opera called The Edge of Night. <laughs> so, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, yeah. now you do. So with that said, yeah. Damon, get ready to come back to work on Thursday night. Glad, glad to have Can't you on wait. the program. And just so you know, Damon Knight and Louis Eddie Weiss are two of my best contributors on the South Florida Tribune. If you ever get a chance, go to www.southfloridatribune.com. You can go ahead and read, read Damon Knight's stories. And Louis Adio Weiss, my co-host, spits out some good ones, too. So two of my best yep. writers are right on here talking Lions football. Unbelievable. Yeah. Thank you, Scoop. I appreciate it. Uh, see you, Louis. It was Take nice care. talking to you. Take care, Damon. Yep. Have a good night. All right. Thank you, Damon. Thank you. Appreciate yep. it. Yep. Take care. All right. Yep. Yep. Bye. All right. Bye. But, no, you're not rattling me up, man. I don't worry about that kind of stuff at all. But you know what? When you're talking about... An organization that's been snake bit for sure. That's had it difficult. You have. They haven't won anything in the Super Bowl era. Well, they've never been in the Super Bowl. There you go. But I'm not worried about it. Doesn't matter. I mean, I mean, I just looked at Stafford's numbers over the last two seasons. The team is eight, twelve, and one. But I mean, you know, I take back a little bit of what I said. Respectable thirty to thirteen touchdown interception ratio. He's completed sixty five percent of his passes, which is top ten in the sport in that span of time but you know what I you know what I'm saying he's just you know they've never won that big game with him as Xavier calls and he's going to talk a little bit with us about that as well all right well hey Xavier McKnight we just went from a night to a McKnight how you doing Xavier welcome back to the sports exchange doing pretty good Scott Lewis how are you guys doing what's going on Xavier how you doing now before we get to some of your other topics do you have an opinion about the Detroit Lions Green Bay Packers uh, game last night everybody else does yeah, Dean Blanton Dino needs to be brought back quick, fast, and in a hurry to fix what's going on because it's not just that game that I have a problem with. I saw so many bad calls around the NFL this weekend that I lost count. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous right now. Now, that doesn't excuse what Baker Mayfield did and any of that on Sunday because he wanted to deflect the blame from how poorly he came out and played. But the things that I watched and the things that I saw on Sunday and then again on last night, it was absolutely egregious. Dean Blandino needs to be brought back quick, fast, and in a hurry. I don't know what the NFL needs to do. Write this man a big, fat check. Tell him how much he is special. Tell him how much you need him, how much he means you, and get him back in his prophecy. Because as far as I'm concerned, this is about as bad as when the replacement reps were put in place in 2012. We all remember that. I made note of that, Xavier, at the outset of our discussion with Bill, that, I mean, I thought those refs were bad in 2012, but, I mean, this is ridiculous. Yes, this is absolutely ridiculous. Well, since this is our trending topic, we had to make sure you got your two cents worth in it. So, all right, with that said, let's go to the year... uh, other topic, and why don't you give us an update on the uh, score really quickly? Of the uh, Nationals game, seven to four in the seventh inning. I think Washington, you know, they're gonna their bullpen hasn't been good this year, second to last in ERA and all of baseball, but they can get it done because they still haven't unleashed the two-headed monster in their pen. That is Daniel Hudson, their closer, and Sean Doolittle. So, I mean, we'll see what happens, but man, they're gonna they're scary right now, and I genuinely think they're gonna be a World Series team in less than uh, you know an hour and a half. All right, well, with that said, we're going to talk about a team that was supposed to get to the World Series that Xavier McKnight did not mind telling me about, and that's the Philadelphia Phillies. As you, uh, we talked about, Xavier Gabe Kapler is out. The team collected 81 wins and didn't make the postseason after signing Bryce Harper and acquiring other big names. 
And to add insult to injury, the Washington Nationals at the moment have a three to nothing lead in the NLCS over the St. Louis Cardinals, and obviously they could get that one away, one win away, uh, therefore allowing that team to have their first World Series appearance. It would be, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, Scott, the first World Series in the city of Washington since, get this, before you and I were born, 1933, the days of Bucky Harris managing the Giants and the Washington Senators. I mean, that, I mean, that's only six years removed from the last game Walter Johnson ever played, so imagine what that would do for that city. There you go, Xavier. This guy's going to outdo us stats all day long. What do you think? Does a man do his homework, or is it in his head, or yes, where does he, he does. get it? Yes, he does. And I'm going to say one more thing that's going to make everyone feel a little extra old about that stat that he just said. Does <laughs> everyone realize what was going on also in 1933? FDR just got going through the Great Depression economic <laughs> session, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt was being elected as our president. So I hope everyone out there feels a little older right now. I mean, hey, it'll make the cut. I mean, the Cubs still have laid claim to um, longer championship drought, but with the way Scott's lines are going, it's going to be, you know, they're going to challenge them too. But yeah, it's going to be exciting, man. Regardless of who goes to that World Series in the American League, by the way, it's going to be the Astros. It's going to be a fun, fun, fun World Series. Okay. Well, I agree with you on that, Lewis. I agree with you on that just simply for the fact that, listen, the New York Yankees are my favorite team, but I'm a realist when it comes to these things. And the thing that worried me about the Yankees coming into this series was they had too many power hitters, and they didn't have the pitching that could match up with the Astros. And you're seeing that now. And Stanton did not play today. He's got a quad injury. He injured his quad rounding the bases on that home run he hit off Granke in game one. So, I mean, you're up without one of those bats. Judge has been taking some phenomenal at-bats all postseason, and... You know, guys like Glaber Torres are really further emerging and cementing their statuses among the young premier stars in the game. But I just think Houston has, you know, arguably one of the best pitching staffs we've ever seen. And, you know, I think that they're dangerous, man. It's going to be a blood-throat series if Houston and Washington go at it. But, again, that remains to be seen. We have to wait two more games for Houston. And then, you know, the Nationals, again, we just have to wait like another hour. Uh, all right, so. For the purposes of us having an entertaining World Series, I would actually like to see Houston and the Nationals as well. Listen, I'm always rooting for the Yankees to do well, but, I'm a, but like I said, I'm a realist with these things. And, you know, you bring up the Giancarlo Stanton injury there, Lewis, but here's my thing about it. I wasn't necessarily a fan of the Yankees trading for him the way that they did anyway because I understand that he was coming off of a National League MVP season, but that was the only full season that this man had mainly been healthy throughout his career. He's been an injury-prone player throughout most of his career. And while they were trading for Giancarlo Stanton, they should have been using most of those assets to say, we need to go out and get some we need to go out and get some starting pitching because Garrett Cole was a name that was also out there then during that time too and they could have honestly had that trade done but so, they didn't get it done and now they're seeking and, and now they are seeing what it is that they missed out on so funny you say that they yeah the, and I'm sure you know they tried to trade for Cole and the package they offered was Clint Frazier, who, oh my God, in New York is he reviled right now, and Miguel Anduar, who finished second in Rookie of the Year voting, you know, in 2017, but, or 2018, I'm sorry, but, you know, Cole just didn't want to go there. He went to Houston, and he worked with Brent Strom, and he became this kind of Cy Young caliber pitcher, but, you know, it's funny, the Nationals kind of had this dichotomy with Bryce Harper, where they had all of this money that they could have invested, which the Yankees essentially gave... You know, most of they they took on ninety percent of Stanton's contract when they traded for him after seventeen. 
And the Nationals, when the, there was all this suspicion of, are they going to sign Harper to a long-term extension? You know, what are they going to do? They took the $330 million or less of that that the Phillies gave Harper, and they invested in guys like Sanchez on a two-year deal. You know, Patrick Corbin, who got $126 million. Um, you That's know, another pitcher that the Yankees missed out on as well. A New York guy who I genuinely thought, and Scott, you would attest to this, local people like to pitch in their hometown. Garrett Cole's probably going to go to the Angels because he grew up in Southern California, five minutes from Angel Stadium. Right. Patrick Corbin is a New York native, a native of Long Island. And I thought from the outset, this guy's going to the Yankees. He goes to Washington, you know, not that far away, a little beltway right there. <laughs> but, you know, the Nationals used all of those resources the same way the 2013 Red Sox did. And they invested it in a multitude of players that helped them get to where they are now. And I think that affirms the notion in any sport. One player does not make a whole team. Well, especially in baseball. Now, let's go back to a couple of things here real quickly, Xavier. I know you're uh, very steadfast about talking about So why don't you go ahead and talk about Gabe Kapler and uh, talk about what your intent was to talk about, about this whole thing with the Phillies and Bryce Harper. Well, I want to get back to the first thing that you said, saying that the Philadelphia Phillies were supposed to be in the World Series. I'm not exactly sure how many people actually believe that because there were still teams that I had in front of them, in particular the Los Angeles Dodgers, but we saw how that played out. But, you know, we looked at the Phillies this year, 81 wins. They didn't even make the playoffs. They brought in a lot of star names, JT, Realmuto, Bryce Harper. They brought in Andrew McCutcheon as well, but Andrew McCutcheon was injured very early on in the season. And you can also make this argument that they were hurt tremendously when Andrew McCutcheon went down because they were playing good baseball before he went down with that torn ACL. Mm -hmm. So that's important to bring into play here. But, you know, just a total meltdown and a disappointment all the way around. As far as I'm concerned, the only thing Bryce Harper did correctly this season in Philadelphia when it comes to baseball statistics was he hit home runs. He didn't have the number of RBIs that a star of his caliber should have. His batting average was not very good as well compared to what it is that he should have. Listen, the main comparison we have been getting to Bryce Harper for years is he's been in this argument with Mike Trout for years on, well, who's the best player in baseball? Now, that argument ended for me long ago. But now, now I don't want to hear this anymore from anybody. I don't want to hear about Bryce Harper being in the same class with Mike Trout as a baseball player again. That That's going to have to be earned and brought all the way back. Mm-hmm. Because I want to bring everyone up to speed on one thing. Mike Trout has not played a baseball game since, since September 7th. On September 7th, he had 45 home runs and over 100 RBIs. I, I want to bring that to everyone's attention right now. So, of course, we had a nice duel this season with players battling for the home run title, Pete Alonzo and Mike Trout and others, but it's very clear to me. I'm, I, I can't predict the future necessarily, but here's what I will say. If Mike Trout did not miss any time, I'm pretty sure it's very safe to say that Mike Trout would have ended up leading the league in home runs and potentially also RBIs. Right. And he would have finished with another year where he would have had a batting average over at least 305. And tr- I- I'm-, I'm willing to go that far with that now. So I don't want to hear about Bryce Harper being in that conversation with him as well. But Scott, this brings up something else that you and I talked about the other night as well. Is What are these baseball general managers and executives thinking when they hand out these 10, 11, 12, 13-year contracts, I don't get it. 
I haven't seen a single one of those contracts that really panned out well yet. Now, everyone, of course, can bring up, well, Alex Rodriguez and the Yankees won a World Series. The 2009 postseason was the only postseason Alex Rodriguez did what he was supposed to do with the Yankees in the postseason. So, as far as I'm concerned, that one was also somewhat of a flop. Let's take a look at Albert Pujols of the Angels. You think this guy isn't going to come out one day and say that he shouldn't have left the Cardinals? Because we already know there's a part of him deep down inside that knows he should not have left that organization. Right. So that was a busted deal right there, and he was already headed for the decline anyway. Mm-hmm. Let's take a look at the Prince Fielder deal with Detroit. That was a massive contract as well. Now, potentially injuries also robbed him of his potential greatness that he could have been as well, but his numbers were also down in Detroit, too. They made it to a World Series with him and Miguel Cabrera leading the way on offense, but his numbers were down compared to what they had been in Milwaukee the previous year before. Now, what about C.J. Wilson? Do we all remember C.J. Wilson, that massive contract he received as well? A bust of a deal. Josh Hamilton, a bust of a deal. Right. I mean, do, do we see this repetitive pattern that I keep talking about here? And here was my favorite one of them all. Robinson Cano signing a massive deal with the Seattle Mariners. He was supposed to take the Mariners back to some form of postseason glory. The Mariners still sit here this day in 2019, still without a postseason berth since 2001, when they set the MLB record for regular season wins with 116 that year. A bust of a deal. I don't think I need to explain any further with any more of these contracts. I don't get why they do these deals the way they do them. At most, I would give these guys a five-year contract. I'm not going to necessarily say that the guys don't deserve the money that they're worth. We're in a different day and age. These players are going to get paid more than $30 million a year, especially when they're stars of that caliber. It just is what it is. So I don't want to rob them of their money, potentially. But why not sign a guy to a five-year, $200 million deal if you can do that? And I also don't understand how players can ultimately just decide right then and there, this is somewhere that I want to be for the next 12, 13 years. How do you know that right there in that potential moment? To to me, after two years have passed, you may be tired of sitting in one place. Exactly. And this isn't just athletics that I'm talking about here. This is just life in general. You don't know when the day will come that you may want to move on from something. So I don't even understand how they can sit there and sign a 13-year deal. The money, like I said, I get the money. I don't get the amount of time. And look at these deals and how they have not panned out and how they have been unsuccessful year after year after year. Scott, the floor is yours. All right. And, yes, the floor is mine. And then you can interject, okay? Uh, Number one, the Alex Rodriguez deal originated in Texas with the Rangers. And the Rangers obviously had to dump that contract with the Yankees. And again, don't they always dump contracts with the Yankees? But he opted out after 07. I know, but my point was it originated Mm -hmm. in Texas, okay? Uh, Number one, it originated in Texas, and obviously the Yankees continued to pay the guy, okay? That's item number one. Number two, you're right, Xavier. There's no doubt that none of these contracts have been great. Miguel Cabrera got a lengthy contract as well. Didn't work out on the back end. Injuries have really been a problem. Again, use the words, etc. ETC, dot, dot, dot. How would, and Bryce Harper going out to Philadelphia? Really? They're going to run him out of town in three years. That was the biggest joke I've ever seen. Manny Machado with the Padres. How did that work out? Not very good. 
I so far. I think what this merely just comes down to, though, and I agree. Look, Harper, like what you said, Xavier, I, whenever I get an opportunity to talk about Mike Trout, I'll briefly delve into it. Trout's OPS Plus is 176. That's top five all time. Mike Trout, if Mike Trout retired today, be, despite baseball's 10-year rule that you have to play 10 full seasons to be a Hall of Famer, Mike Trout would waltz into the Hall of Fame. I think he's one of the three greatest players I've ever seen. Barry Bonds the greatest player I've ever seen. But anyway, Harper has been fantastic, but by value, Trout is you know, light years ahead of him. But I think with these big contracts, the only f reason why they happen is not only one that the teams have the financial capital, but they're appealing to the players because, and I've heard GM say this before, when Ruben Amaro gave Carlos Ruiz a three-year extension, he said, I didn't want to go a third year, but he did. They're only trying to appeal to the player because they care about the right now and they'll, and they say they'll handle the consequences later. So let me get back to my other point, okay, and that's this. Number one, those deals don't work out. I'm not going to sit here and read into what an executive says, Lewis. I'm not going to do it. The bottom line is they're, they're trying to secure their core players for a long time. Mm -hmm. Is what they're doing. I get it. But I'm going to go back to the what's going to end up happening, and we'll see new trends when it comes to contracts all the time. The one thing that nobody's even understanding here is that baseball does not have a salary cap. Mm -hmm. That's why these deals are as long as they are. Hockey has longer deals, like 10 years. But again, you're not talking the same amount of money where you can lock a guy up for maybe 3 or $4 million a year over a period of time, depending on the sports of revenue. So, you know, you have to look at the dynamics of, do I want to go out there and keep my core intact? Probably, okay. But, you know, I mean... When you talk about these deals, don't work out. Okay, I agree with you. they don't. And again, the Marlins have been dumping salary a long, long time. Anyways, going back to their first World Championship and their second. Thank the and of course, this year they had Derek Jeter as the owner, who found a taker with the Yankees. Okay, but you know the reality is they don't work well, out at all. Let me interject all. here really quickly as well, sure. because you brought up the Marlins again with the Giancarlo Stanton contract. Right. We, we, we need to remind our listeners of something really quickly. These are not the. This is not the first bad contract that the Marlins did in this decade alone. Jose Reyes. What about the Jose Reyes deal? Right. What? Okay. He like, fell. Mark Burley. I don't understand what these executives are doing here. And Scott, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna throw this point at you and and Lewis, you too, and you guys tell me how you feel about this. I don't feel like the Angels are gonna see any type of true success again until they get that Albert Pujols contract off their books. Just simply because it was a bad move from the start. They have only had one postseason run that ended very shortly in 2014 since he has been there. Every other year since then, it has been a missed playoffs, a manager being fired, now two managers being fired. Now, I'm not here to say that he's to blame for all of this because they made other bad contracts along the way with that one as well. But that one in particular, that has been a huge hold on that team's success. And, yes, I understand baseball does not have a salary cap. And, yes, you look at the cap flexibility that the owners and the GMs have to work with here. But explain this to me. It, just explain this one thing to me when these guys go out and sign these big deals. Okay. Why is it that after they go out and sign these big deals, and this is even with no salary cap, they go out and they sign these stars to these big deals. And we've seen pitchers get these, these, these deals as well. But as the Astros and the Nationals are showing us right now, you build your team around solid pitching. 
what did these teams suffer from the most after they signed most of these offensive stars to these deals? They suffered from pitching. The Detroit Tigers are an anomaly compared to everyone else. Right. They had young pitchers to start out this decade. However, look what ended up happening as a result of them signing Miguel Cabrera to right. that huge contract they did. Max Scherzer ended up walking. You ended up having to trade Justin Verlander. You couldn't keep Anibal Sanchez. Right. See, I understand the thing about there's no salary cap, but explain to me how you sign these offensive stars to these huge deals, right. and then there's no room to go around for what really should matter out there, and those are the guys that you put out there on the mound. Right. Because they control the state of your game more than anything, more than likely. Yeah, well, again, I'll go back to what I said before. Okay, you, even though there's no salary cap, there's still a luxury tax, and more and more teams don't want to go over it, and now you're going to start seeing a different type of economics ultimately coming into play. Do you know what I mean? So the luxury tax is going to play into it. Do you take the win-now approach, deplete the farm system? You know, so it depends on philosophical differences within the organization because you can throw that stuff out the window and the Tampa Bay Rays can go out there and make us all look stupid because of the way they develop players as well. Do you know what I mean? But in the end... I don't care what it is. These bad contracts are definitely bad, and you're going to start seeing shorter deals. At some point, that's inevitable, okay? Owners get smart after a while. They will. There's Just like there were longer deals, there were shorter deals. And as you continue to see lower attendance figures and uh, revenue streams taper off, they're going to have to bring those contracts uh, in line with where the market really is. You know what I mean? So Lewis brings up a lot of good points. You bring up a lot of good points. But the one thing I can honestly say is I remember many years ago when the minimum salary was $30,000 a year and that uh, when Rusty Staub was making $145,000 a year, everybody was whining. And now all of a sudden, they, it seems like they're making $145,000 a, a minute. You know, I mean, so times have changed, you know, when you're looking at this whole thing. Uh, overall, you know what I mean? So I, I know where you're coming from. I think the Philadelphia deal with Bryce Harper was an absolute joke. 13 years to play in Philadelphia? Really? You're talking about a town that booed Santa Claus, for God's sakes. Really? They booed Santa Claus. They booed Donovan McNabb. Donovan McNabb was a guy who had postseason success outside of not winning a Super Bowl. Right. So I really don't think he understood what he got himself into when he went and signed that contract. He was only looking at the money. He was looking at the length of years on the deal that the team was able to give him. He was looking at how they look like they value him right now. That's like you said, Scott, in three years, unless we see some dramatic major turnaround in that organization, I don't believe he's going to be in that organization. But here's the problem. I don't think you're also going to find anybody to dump that salary off on either. Well, I don't know. I wouldn't say nobody. There's always the Yankees, remember? But they're not going to do I'm that. I'm not saying they would. Judge. There's always the Yankees. They never thought there'd be a takeover of the Giancarlo Stanton deal, but there was. But, yeah, I'd find it hard, unless the Red Sox do five years later. I'm just kidding, by the way. Mm-mm. Don't take me seriously on that. I know you will, but don't. Okay, but my point is you're right. These contracts are becoming more and more difficult to move without a doubt. And and, and that's what we're talking about. But, the, but who would have thunk, okay, that the Philadelphia Phillies would be 81 and 81, and the Washington Nationals are so close to going to the World Series. 
That to me was something I never saw coming, but it just goes to show you that the Nationals have done a super job in terms of developing their other players, so they would end up finding other guys to pick up the slack. So, and before we and before we go, I just want to add this one line in there as well. Sure. We didn't see this coming, but kudos to the Washington Nationals, and a major kudos to them because it looked like they were tearing their team completely apart right. near the trade deadline last season. And Bryce Harper treated that organization all year last season like they really weren't good enough to have his services. So kudos to them. Oh yeah, no, I tell you what. Uh, you know what? I can't stomach Bryce Harper. I can't. And you know what? A good. I think Washington deep down inside is in good riddance. So before we let you off the air, okay, Xavier McKnight, as we always do, uh, why don't we have a preview of the real and rare tomorrow night here uh, on the South Florida Tribune Broadcasting Network? Yes, we're going to be talking a little bit of Cleveland Browns tomorrow and of how Baker Mayfield, when he made a mess of himself out there on the field, and then made, he made another mess of himself in his post-game press conference. But, you know, we're going to take this to also another more serious topic tomorrow. We talk about a lot on The Real and The Rare, how we are a lot more than a sports show. Tomorrow our listeners are going to get a chance to really get a touch of that because we're going to be addressing mental health and its importance and, you know, letting everyone know out there that it's okay for you to go out there and get help and talk to others if you have to right. because it's so much going on in our world today. We're seeing so many suicides, so many murders. We're seeing just so many horrendous and terrible things that are taking place that, you know, we have a platform that we can use to address these issues and try to reach out and touch somebody if we can, and this is the time for us to do it right now. All right, well, with that said, great uh, observations, Xavier McKnight. I want to thank Louis Adio Weiss, as always, for being on the Sports Exchange and the rest of our guests. Uh, so you're tuning into the South Florida Tribune Broadcasting Network here, uh, and don't and check out the website, www.southfloridatribune.com. Lewis has a lot of great stories out there, good reads. So on behalf of our uh, all-star guests lined up then, tonight, that includes the likes of Barry Foote, Bill Winters, Xavier McKnight, Ryan Skullrude, Anthony Wood, Damon Knight. Uh, we want to wish you guys a great night, and we will see you on Thursday night here on the Sports Exchange on the South Florida Tribune Broadcasting Network. All right, have a good one, Xavier. Have a Take good care. night. Thank you, Xavier. Good night, everyone. Holiday tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. My friends still rave about the Prosecco I brought last year. Let me help make your Friendsgiving unforgettable. Bordeaux is one of the world's most popular red blends, made from Cabernet, Cab Franc, and Merlot. It also makes the perfect gift for your picky boss. Having turkey and all the fixings? I suggest an easy-drinking Pinot Noir. For white drinkers, try an unoaked Chardonnay. Whether you're entertaining or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection with you this holiday. Now offering same-day delivery at TotalWine.com. Cheers! Security threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit today. Restrictions apply.